Welcome to this NJ Spotlight Roundtable, a map to New Jersey's clean energy future. This program was recorded Friday, March 15th, 2019 at the RWJ Fitness and Wellness Center in Hamilton Township, New Jersey. By 2050, New Jersey aims to be a carbon-free economy, but it has yet to chart a roadmap for achieving that goal. What needs to happen to transition us from here, a state that now relies on natural gas for 40% of its electricity and 75% of its home heating, to there? How do we electrify our transportation system, modernize an aging power grid, and seamlessly integrate clean energy? How can we use energy more efficiently? In the first of a series of energy roundtables in 2019, NJ Spotlight will ask experts about the challenges, pitfalls, and benefits of transitioning to a clean energy future and for practical suggestions toward attaining the goal. Now let's go to the lectern where John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, will introduce the program. Good morning, everyone. And welcome. My name is John Mooney. I'm founding editor of NJ Spotlight, and uh, thank you all very much for being here for this important panel on New Jersey's clean energy future. Um, for those of you um, who, who haven't uh, joined us before, we've done more than 80 of these panels uh, over the course of, we're almost nine years old. Uh, in May is our birthday. Uh, and. Um, really feel this is an important part of our mission uh, as, a, as a news site in, in New Jersey. The notion of live journalism, bringing people together, having these discussions. Uh, as I often say, we, we, there's plenty of chatter online and it's nice to see each other face to face once in a while. I want to give a special shout out to, he probably holds our attendance records for especially energy events. We have Governor F uh, Jim Florio is joining us. Just want to say hello. Give us credibility, Governor Florio. That's great. Um, I also, I, along these lines, we we have one upcoming on Thursday um, on end of life um, uh, healthcare forum at, at Rutgers uh, Douglas uh, College on end of life services and some of the the issues are faced in that. So uh, put that on your calendar if that's an issue of interest to you. Um, as some of you might know, NJ Spotlight recently got married. Uh, we um, were acquired by WNET uh, Public Television to be a partner with NJTV News here in New Jersey. Um, big, a big step for us. And as such, um, we are now live streaming these events, and hence the camera. Um, and it's a, a real opportunity to not only be here, but also to share uh, the, the discussion with others afterwards. We will be building a page uh, for this event. It'll be under our roundtables tab in, on our site, where we'll have that live stream as well as a podcast that breaks up some of the discussions, uh, an article on the, on the event, um, and list of, of, of speakers, and pretty much all the information we can provide on, on the event. So that keeps it alive and, and hopefully can keep the discussion going as well. So, so look for that. That will, you know, within the week or so. A um, few logistics to today. Um, we took a, a bunch of you and we appreciated uh, submitted questions uh, beforehand as part of the registration and we will be incorporating those into the discussion, uh, which is, you know, really important to have your, your thoughts on sort of the important things to talk about. There is also on your table surveys that we ask you to fill out before you leave. It helps us, um, you know, know how we're doing and how these events work and not work. And, and that feedback is really important. 
So please do that, and you can leave those forms on the table, or you can leave them on the way out. Um, I'm told there's Wi-Fi here uh, for folks. It's um, the um, platform is CHW Conference Room, and there's no password, so you can look that up. Um, and then, last but not least, I want to introduce uh, Steve Shallot, our uh, business strategy um, director, to talk a little bit about our sponsors. And I, I, I want to do a special shout out to our sponsors as well. Without sponsorships, um, these events can't be free um, and can't, you know, basically be an, an opportunity for folks to get together without having to pay anything. Food's free, coffee's free. Um, but that's what's really important is it, it allows us to do these kinds of events and, and make them available to the public. So I think it's really important um, that they get a lot of credit for it. And I'm introducing Steve Shallot to say a few words about him. Thanks, John. Welcome, everyone. And uh, I'm Steve Shallot. It's um, my pleasure to be uh, involved in the production of this event, to bring us all together to uh, help uh, illuminate important topics in the state. And our energy future is among the most pressing of the topics that we face. And your, uh, your expertise and attention and input is extremely valuable. And thank you for being here. Um, John said that our sponsors are vital to our ability to create these forums, and that is absolutely correct. And I'd like to say a few words on behalf of our four sponsors for today. Uh, firstly, I'd like to, sh uh, to thank New Jersey Resources, which is a Fortune 1000 company that provides natural gas and clean energy services to more than a half a million homeowners and businesses in New Jersey, as well as, as, well as to wholesale customers across the country. Its principal subsidiary, New, Jer New Jersey Natural Gas, operates an environmentally responsible natural gas delivery system and is a leader in energy efficiency to help customers manage their energy usage, save money, and reduce emissions. Its clean energy business, NJR Clean Energy Ventures, invests in, owns, and operates residential and commercial sol solar projects and is one of the state's leading residential solar providers. We'd like to thank also Sunrun, which is the nation's leading home solar battery storage and energy services company. They have 233,000 customers and over 4,000 employees nationwide, and they operate in 22 states plus the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Their mission is to create a planet run by the sun. Sunrun has led the industry since 2007 with its solar as a service model, providing clean energy to households with modest to no upfront cost. We would also like to thank Orsted, which is the global leader in offshore wind energy and is, a, is proud to present its Ocean Wind Project, a proposed offshore wind farm located 15 miles off the coast of Atlantic City. City. The Ocean Wind team, supported by PSEG, brings a combination of global and U.S. success to the offshore wind industry and has a decade of experience developing offshore wind in New Jersey specifically. And if awarded, Ocean Wind will deliver the first permanent offshore wind manufacturing jobs in the U.S., provide up to 600,000 homes with clean energy, and produce several thousand construction jobs. And lastly, we'd also like to thank PSEG. Public Service Enterprise Group is a Fortune 300 diversified energy company with approximately 13,000 employees headquartered in Newark, New Jersey. PSEG's principal operating subsidiaries are PSE&G, New Jersey's largest electric and gas utility, and PSEG Power, one of the region's leading electric generators. PSEG has been named to the Dow Jones Sustainability Index 
from North America for 11 consecutive years, and Forbes' 2019 list of America's best employers for diversity for a second year in a row. Thanks again to our sponsors. Thank you, Steve. Um, I have the great pleasure to introduce our keynote, uh, Scott Wiener, who's a long, longtime friend of NJ Spotlights as well. And um, I had the task to summarize uh, his career, which is in three pages. Um, but it's amazing. I don't know what this man hasn't done. Um, and uh, you know, and I, I, I cover education, and I've I, I worked with him briefly when he was um, in in charge of what was uh, then the School Construction Authority, now the SDA. I'm, you're probably glad not to be involved with that right now. I might add. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> But um, of course, he's a partner of uh, Florio Perucci, Steinhardt, and Capelli, but that's really just the start. Before that, um, most recently, he had worked with uh, the New York State Department of Public Service, and then a long line of, of work for New Jersey, and, and a real uh, testament to his public service for our state. President of the New Jersey Board of Utilities, Commissioner of uh, Department of Ed Environmental Protection and Energy, Chief Counsel to Governor Florio, um, Executive um, Vice Chair of the New Jersey Executive Commission on Ethical Standards, Executive Director of New Jersey Election Law Enforcement Commission, Special Counsel to uh, former Governor Corzine, and of course CEO of New Jersey's School Construction Program, uh, was on the Clinton-Gore Transition Committee. I mean, it goes on and on. I'll go to the second page quickly. Um, also in academia, of course, academia, uh, founding director of the Center for Energy, Economic, and Environmental Policy at Rutgers, and then in the, in the corporate world, especially uh, president of Ballard Generation Systems and um, also Ballard Power Systems. So, you know, a man who knows th this topic and many others, uh, unlike other, anyone I know, uh, maybe except for Tom Johnson, I might add, uh, our reporter. Um, but he's, it, we're really honored to have uh, somebody of his knowledge and experience and, and um, insight speaking with us. It's obviously an incredibly important topic, and, and there's no one I think we'd all rather hear from than, than Scott Wiener. So, Scott, will you join us? Thank you, John. And thank you for that very gracious introduction. Many of you in the room I've known We've known each other for literally decades. So I can say unabashedly um, that to this day, my ex-in-laws still think I can't hold a job. <laughs> I'm um, trying to decide which font I can use at this height. It also, it, it's, it's a thing of age. Um, first, the, the uh, disclaimer, I am, um, many of you know, I'm an active practicing attorney. And therefore, I want to make the point that the, anything I say today reflects purely and solely my opinions and doesn't reflect the opinions of any of my clients, past or present, any clients of the firm, any of my partners, and probably any of you. Um, and I also reserve the right to um, change my thoughts. Um, I want to do a couple of acknowledgments before I start. I know many of you in the room, so um, let me just say it's nice to be back. And it's nice to be working with you this past year. And I look forward to continuing to work together in the future. But I do want to call out, I'm in a unique position, and I, I want to acknowledge Governor Jim Florio. 29 years ago, almost to the month, 
I had the privilege of being appointed and confirmed as the president of the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities. And since that time, really before that time, um, and immediately before that time, I not only served as the compliance officer and treasurer of the governor's 1989 gubernatorial campaign, but I was also his driver. Uh, so for anybody in the room who either yourself or you have family members or friends who wonder whether or not they should drive a, uh, a soon-to-be elected official, the answer is yes. Uh, it's a very special relationship. But over the course of those years, uh, 29 years now, almost over 30, um, I've been able to call uh, Governor Florio my boss in the most affectionate of terms, my colleague, my partner, uh, and most of all, a friend. And I'm standing here today as a result of a direct line of events that started out, Governor, with you having the confidence in me to appoint me to that position, and I thank you very much. My goal this morning is to present a framework uh, for a discussion that's going to take place, in part it's already begun and it's certainly going to take place over the coming years. And it's going to take place in many venues, in many forums, some sponsored by New Jersey Spotlight, the BPU, the legislature, some of the organizations in this room. And what I want to do is raise some questions for consideration, not just by the panel today, but by all of us as we go forward. Um, we truly are at an inflection point. We're at a point of change, and I'll suggest that this isn't just generational change. This is basic, fundamental change in how energy is supplied and delivered and used in our state and in our country. Of course, we come to today in, without a blank slate. Lots of things have taken place and lots of things are going on. The Clean Energy Act that was enacted almost a year ago sets a very aggressive agenda and provides a focus on some specific critical issues. And I think it's important to acknowledge, as we look around the country, the leadership that New Jersey continues to play. And we could get into the comparison and say, well, we're behind this state or we're behind that state. But there's a lot to be proud of and there's a lot to acknowledge. And I want to start there. I want to start there with the Governor Murphy's initiatives. The, leader, the leadership and the members of the legislature that codified that into the Clean Energy Act. Those of us that are in this room, and many of you were in the trenches making that happen. And of course, the BPU. Now, um, I have been both a critic and a cheerleader of the BPU. I think it's nothing short of extraordinary um, what Joe Fridoliso is president, Commissioner Shevakula is here, their colleagues as commissioners, and most importantly, the staff of the board has done in the past 14 months in terms of moving this agenda along. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a lot to be done. That doesn't mean I haven't been critical at public hearings and other forums. But I think all of us have to be willing to hold both realities as valid that there's a terrific foundation, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. And they're not inconsistent with each other, they merely reflect the reality. We have a, the beginning of an energy master plan that will be unveiled uh, to all of us very soon. That's gonna provide a very important context at an appropriately high level of interdisciplinary, interagency, intermodal interactions. And that's gonna be an important document. 
and critical questions about the beneficial use of electricity, about how do we begin to replace fossil fuels to cook with, to heat our homes with, and to move ourselves around in various forms of transportation. Very critical questions that will be addressed there. We have to, when we think about the Energy Master Plan, and as we think about the topics we're going to discuss today, resist the seductive appeal of the status quo. It's easy, it's convenient, and it's comfortable. But if we're going to achieve the visions that we all have for our families, for our children, grandchildren, for the state as a whole, for our businesses, we're going to have to challenge the status quo aggressively and ultimately successfully. My thesis is that although the Clean Energy Act provides this initial work plan, it provides some foundational building blocks. What it's missing is the connective tissue of policy that links them all together. The connective tissue of policy and vision that will allow all of us, regardless of whether we're a stakeholder, a market participant, or a policymaker, to begin to make knowing choices of priority and sequencing. How do we choose what to do? What comes first? How do we take the finite resources of not just money, but time, and make sure they're applied in the most effective way? I, I want to cite one example. Uh, maybe you know that uh, prior to joining the governor's firm, I spent almost four years in New York State leading New York's reformation of the utility industry for the New York Public Service Commission. Um, without going into the details, and I don't pretend that one can cut and paste one state's policies into another state, but fundamentally what New York had concluded was it was important to bring about the deployment of distributed energy resources in a large way that the future of the distribution grid was going to be built around and founded upon the reality of distributed energy resources, and New York wanted to get ahead of that trend. But they also realized that in order to attract private investment to support that DER deployment, they had to come up with a compensation mechanism that would value and compensate DER for the values that they brought to the grid. And simply put, net metering was not going to do that. Net metering was a very successful tool, it was a very successful incentive, but to move into the next generation, we had to come up with something else, and maybe you know that that something else is something which is affectionately called VDR, or the value of distributed energy resources, where the commission and stakeholders began to build the value stack and began to look at what values are brought. Some of us uh, were in New York, um, for the past two days at a battery storage conference. And I will say with unabashed pride that it was great to hear DER developers get up and say that that compensation mechanism now has unlocked value that allows them to make investments in New York State. That type of opportunity, whether it's VDR or some other compensation mechanism, needs to be thought of. And the reason why all that was possible and the reason why we're able to move away from net metering without the extensive and very deep-seated rancor and animosity that was witnessed in other states was because that connective tissue existed. People understood the rationale and the priority and the necessity. There was a lot of debate, and there's still a lot of people who will corner me and criticize the initiative. 
But the reality is we all shared the same vision. So now let's take a look at the situation here in New Jersey. And indulge me for a moment of personal reflection over the past 29 years. And I want to go back to early 1990, the first quarter of 1990, when I became the president of the BPU. And many of you in this room were around at that time, so you'll be familiar with this. And I have to acknowledge that some of you in this room probably weren't even born yet, which is something I'm still getting my head around. I want to point to three things that happened almost 30 years ago. The big technological advancement, the BPU, that the staff was appropriately really enthusiastic that I'm proud of was that in 1990, documents could be filed with the board rather than coming down in person, but by fax. That was a, an extraordinary technological improvement. The issue of the day in electricity, or one of the issues of the day is electricity, was whether or not non-utility generators, independent power producers, could be allowed to build and operate power plants and there were serious questions being raised by the then utility management, of course not today's management, as to whether or not that was safe and whether or not anyone other than a utility could be allowed to do that. And that was the debate around NUGS. And energy efficiency was then, is today, and will continue to be a challenge for us and others around the country as we think about how do we take that policy and begin to really recognize it in what it should be, which is the first choice uh, for energy in the state. Uh, back then, I had a dream team in the electric division of Steve Gable, Bob Children, and Mike Ambrosio. Many of you know. And they came to me and they said, we're having a problem. We can't get the utilities to support demand-side management. And I said, why not? And they said, well, because they'd rather build power plants. Why? Because they get a return on that investment. Very simple. I said, let's give them a return on investments that they make in energy efficiency. And that gave birth to the first standard offer in energy efficiency. There were a lot of problems with it. Some of you in this room probably experienced those problems. But it was an indication of innovation that began to set a framework for further advancement. I think that there are, there's general agreement today about the drivers that are pushing us forward, not just here, but around the country. One is the unquestionable urgency to address climate change and the state's policies of 50 by 30, 100 by 50, 80% reductions in greenhouse gas can all of a sudden um, take on a significance beyond even the importance of climate change. And that's because those policies are going to initiate an unstoppable transformation of the electric grid and infrastructure. Those three policies, if nothing else, is going to change everything that we know today and experience today about the delivery of electricity. So we have to link that. That's one of the drivers. Second driver is customers are seeking greater control of their use of energy and are looking for choices that they can deploy, that they can choose among as to how they use and how they acquire their energy. And the term customer, I'll discuss that, extends beyond today whoever is at the other end of a utility meter. 
And finally, technological change is continuing at a pace that is, in fact, enabling what I'll refer to as the 20th century grid. Um, over the years, smart grids have been talked about, intelligent grids. There's a fundamental change taking place that's going to affect the distribution systems around the country. And the question is whether a state ultimately is going to get ahead of that and try to figure out how to take advantage of these trends and how to harness these trends, or will lay back and wait for change to occur and have change be an impact upon that state. Those are the three trends. I want to ask the question and ask us all to consider today and going forward, why are we doing all this? Why do we care whether we're out in front or whether we are a solid second? Um, I want to suggest four reasons. I mentioned climate change. Second is customer empowerment. Customers are seeking empowerment. And I think that it is incumbent upon all of us to recognize that even the term customer has changed. That I'll suggest that DER providers are and should be recognized as customers of a utility. And when a utility, and I'm talking generically now, not about any specific utility, when a utility recognizes a DER provider as a customer, then all of a sudden the relationship changes. And the relationship changes because whatever resistance there might have been to providing hosting maps and other information and help that DR provider figure out where to locate their project goes away because they're no longer a competitor, they're a customer. And there's a very important role for the BPU to play here in New Jersey and utility commissions around the country to help facilitate that and instituting policies that align the interests of the electric providers, the utilities, the non-utilities, and customers together. And there are lots of tools to choose among on how to do that. A third is, I'll use the phrase universal access um, in the telephone industry. But it's a very simple concept here. It's that no one, no one in the state should be denied the opportunity to both participate in and benefit in the clean energy economy. Period, full stop. That's a commitment that has to be infused in one of the reasons why all this is being done. And finally, the recognition of a point that has been mentioned repeatedly that the governor called out in his economic plan about a year ago, and that is that energy is an industry. And it's an industry that is going to be able to bring about, if we all do it correctly, economic development of its own in the growth of that industry, economic development because of all the industries that rely upon the provision of affordable, clean, effective energy, and through all that jobs. So I want to unpack in just a couple minutes these drivers and these reasons and raise some questions um, for the panelists today, for all of us in the future. Um, first, the implication of what I think is a first principle, and that is that costs matter. Costs matter, but so do benefits. And it simply is incomplete to merely look at the cost side of the equation. 
if done correctly, the investments that we make as individuals, as businesses, as utilities, as companies in this state will bring about not just a cost, but a benefit at multiple levels. And a question is whether or not a benefit-cost analysis should become an expected part of any policy analysis. At some point, the policies become so big and so general that that may be impractical. But having that BCA, that benefit-cost analysis, both ensures that benefits are considered and that provides a foundation for comparison and to making choices. Another important question is what are the components that go into the benefit-cost analysis? And not just the question of carbon, the role of the social cost of carbon, or any of the alternatives as a measure, but how do we get along? How do we move the analysis along to improve the granularity of analysis of both benefits and costs? Second topic I mentioned is the customer. Um, and really answering the question, who is the customer? And what are the obligations and opportunities for a customer? And a recognition that the definition of customer is changing. And recognizing what customers are seeking. And providing that to them. And recognizing that the utility has a critical role to play in both broadening its definition, its perspective of customer and that the regulatory agencies here, the BPU, has an opportunity to really facilitate that change by aligning the interests. So um, one simple example, um, and a lot has happened in five years, but five years ago in New York, um, there was a historic tension between utilities and VR providers, solar developers. And the commission took the simple, and some people thought simplistic said, of saying, okay, we want to make sure that the New York utilities view the deployment of solar as part of their mission. Not by owning it, but by facilitating the investment in it. And there are lots of ways for utility to do that, and there are lots of ways for utility to compensate it for that. And New York began to align those interests. I think the question of how do we align those interests towards a stated goal to advance the overall policy that's defined by this connective tissue is a critical issue for us. Third topic, thinking about the 21st century grid. A um, couple things we know today. The distribution system is bi-directional and it's becoming transactive. It is not, not only not our parents' grid, um, it's not even our grid from not that many years ago. It's bi-directional and it's transactive. There is an inexorable growth of DER. If a state does nothing, DER is going to proliferate. It's going to proliferate on people's rooftops. It's going to proliferate in people's homes. And it's going to proliferate by technologies. That's a trend and that's happening. DER... Um, also raises a question of energy efficiency. And energy efficiency, of course, has become, as it should be, a driving policy in New Jersey. But along with that come some connections. Go back to the issue of priorities and sequencing. I believe, I believe that there cannot be a serious discussion 
about achieving the energy efficiency goals unless there's a concurrent discussion about data, not just data protection, but how do you get data into the hands of customers so they can take advantage of energy efficiency opportunities? How do we get data into the hands of energy efficiency companies so they can effectively and efficiently target their customers, reduce the cost of customer acquisition, and begin to enter into a new era of commercial engagement? And how does that data get provided in the absence of AMI, or I'll even say metering functionality? And I'll go so far as to say, I'll state the premise that we will never achieve the state's goals with energy efficiency without a smart, cost-effective, universal deployment of advanced metering functionality. As we think about the grid, there are important questions about natural gas that are being debated today. What's the role of natural gas? What do we really see the horizon like? Most importantly, how do we do it smart? How do we do it smart? The phrase non-wireless alternative has now become part of the common lexicon in the electric utility industry. Um, and the phrase non-pipe alternatives should be, and in fact is becoming, equally um, used. How do we avoid both prematurely shutting off access to a resource that's needed, while at the same time not building an infrastructure that's going to get stranded a few decades from now? And of course, what's the role of markets and what's the role of utilities? Um, certain things are just fundamental, they're axiomatic. The financial health of utilities is essential. That can be achieved in a number of different ways. Utilities are an essential component of an electric system. That's axiomatic. But I'll suggest that the role is changing. It has to change if nothing, for no other reason than the grid is changing. It's becoming bidirectional. It's becoming transactive. It's becoming technology rich. So the role of the utility has to change. Some people talk about it as a platform. Other people talk about it as just the evolution of the monopoly function. Call what you will a topic for discussion here in New Jersey that we all need to be actively participating in is what's the role? Not is there a role, what's the role of the utility? How does the utility get compensated? How are those incentives and interests aligned? And of course, that leads us to the question of who owns DER. Uh, and I want to suggest that that's not a zero-sum game. Uh, different states and different jurisdictions are taking different approaches, but it's but it's important to note that there are roles for all the parties. And it's not a zero-sum game. It's not one group wins and the other group loses. It's not the utilities win or the utilities lose. Putting aside issues of ownership, utilities are a necessary and an essential ally in the achievement of clean energy goals. But it can be done in ways in addition to or other than ownership. Things like new generation of shared savings, things like utilities providing assistance in customer acquisition, site location, information about the best locations that provide the best economic value within their system. And this is manifested by things like non-wires alternatives. Um, and um, New York, who adopted a platform model, talks about platform service revenues. How to infuse, inf how to infuse innovation 
not just in utilities, but our entire ecosystem on energy. And there are ways to do that. And in fact, um, Governor Flora, remember that in 1993, we instituted, we created something called the New Jersey Corporation for Advanced Technology that still exists. That was an early version of the demonstration project model adopted in New York or RevConnect. The similarity is not accidental, but it was an idea of saying we're going to bring, bring innovation in to the ecosystem by helping to facilitate connections. The fourth topic, and the next to last one, is 21st century regulation. The obligation to move and to adjust and change resides not just on the regulated entities, but the regulator also. I want to suggest that there are simple tools that any um, regulator, any regulatory agency can adopt to help bring about the kind of collaboration that's going to be essential to move us into this next era. One of them is that camera. I want to suggest that there simply is no reason why state agencies cannot and should not be webcasting their meetings to facilitate participation. There is no reason why, whether it be recordings, video, or audio, can't be archived for easy reference. Now, this is happening. I know with the BPU in small doses. I want to suggest that the fundamental change has to be that it becomes the order of the day. It becomes standard operating procedure and that stakeholders and market participants are viewed not just as an important source of information, but as essential partners in developing policy. And when that change occurs, other things will occur. Calendars and schedules will be made available, not merely for the convenience of the stakeholders, but so that they can plan their work, so they know when they have to be ready, they know when they have to hire consultants. And the whole process, I think, will show a dramatic improvement. Lastly is time. It's a simultaneously both an infinite and a finite resource. And through this process, it's going to be important for all of us to manage our own and each other's expectations. Um, this will not be a big bang. I am a, a big believer in the, uh, the physics of public policy and the law that says that public policy implementation always takes longer than is hoped for and markets always move faster than anticipated. And we're experiencing that right now. If we keep that in mind, we'll be able to husband time as a resource. Inclusion, I want to suggest that the choice that all states face, that's now on New Jersey's doorstep, is whether to try to harness these trends, to harness these realities of the marketplace, and figure out how best to adopt them for New Jersey, or to be more passive and allow change to happen. Now, that isn't meant to be some kind of snide, um, obvious answer. There is a legitimacy to saying that we're going to wait on this one. But it's a question about how do we determine which ones we wait on. So I want to go back to the core principle, I believe, of being in a position for the state as a whole, with all the stakeholders, all the public policymakers, be able to collectively address the questions 
what are our priorities, and how do we se sequence them? What do we want to do? What do we need to do? And what can we afford to wait on? And this will allow for the most cost-effective deployment of both human and financial resources. The obligation of safe, adequate utility service at reasonable cost isn't going away. It isn't changing. The obligation of the utility to provide that and the state to provide a mechanism to assure that isn't changing. What is changing is how all that is going to be accomplished. This is an incredible time for us all to be in this discussion and helping to create these policies in these markets. I appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts with you this morning, and most of all, look forward to working with you in the coming months and years. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate the comments about the transparency of the system as, as journalists. That's uh, paramount to us. So um, I'm glad that's on the table as well. Um, could our panelists please join us? And at the same time, and uh, panelists Curtis Fisher, Nick, uh, Nicole Sitaraman, uh, Senator Smith, and Geraldine Smith. Uh, at the same time, anyone who has an open seat at your table, could you raise a hand? We have, there's, a couple over here. I know um, we want to obviously not make people stand the whole time. Our first panel this morning is going to be on the roles of utilities and markets. And this gives me an opportunity to introduce Tom Johnson, our energy and environment uh, reporter and a co-founder of NJ Spotlight uh, with us from the very beginning. Um, and as I mentioned before, probably the, the one guy who can best uh, Scott Weiner in terms of overall knowledge of these issues. <laughs> and, that, and that may be arguable, but um, there's no doubt he's a wonderful journalist and, and uh, brings his talents to uh, Spotlight and to New Jersey every day, literally. And um, I'd like you all to welcome Tom Johnson and we'll get the conversation going. Well, thanks, John. Uh, there goes my credibility. Um, but we have a great panel, and I'm um, going to rush right into it because we got a lot of stuff to discuss, and uh, times are fleeting. First of all, I'll introduce Senator Bob Smith. As everyone knows, he's one of the key drivers in shaping energy policy in New Jersey, mostly for the good. And. <laughs> <laughs> Senator, go ahead. Let me grab a mic. Uh, I could summarize the whole presentation. I, have, I think I have. I could summarize the whole presentation by being screwed. And that is, we're screwed. All right. Um, coming down here today, I'm listening to 101.5. I really don't tune in, but my wife left it on the radio station. And Bill Spady is on there, and he's saying, uh, you know, these terrible leaders who are convincing our children that there's a climate problem that is an existential threat, existential threat to them, and shame on them for misleading everybody. Then the other side of that, we have Tom Moran, who does an editorial about six months ago after uh, an elderly woman in Newark uh, died, and there was... Uh, too much of a lag between public service 
turning the electricity on. It was a non-payment of a bill issue. And the editorial said, the real culprits are not the utility. The real culprit, culprits are the legislators because they made electricity too expensive for her to be able to pay her bill. So those are kind of like the extremes of where we are, and it tells you a little something about the democratic process. It really is not easy, and it can be very cumbersome, and everything can take a long time. I don't think we have a long time. I mean, uh, if, if you didn't get whacked in Sandy, get prepared. You're, you got more coming. You know, these extreme weather events are getting more and more extreme. There's more and more energy out there for these storms, winds, whatever you want to call it, the heat waves through the ocean. You see the coral reefs uh, dying. You see Greenland, uh, the ice sheets melting. I mean, we're in big trouble. We really are. And then if you saw the New York Times uh, about six or eight weeks ago, they, inv they devoted the entire magazine section to... Uh, global climate change, and basically said, we're screwed. We've already passed the tipping point, and you can plan on being Mars in the future where we're a fried, crisp uh, potato chip. Or you can read 2140, which is a current New York Times bestseller, uh, describing the year 2140, where there's already been two ocean rises and how people are living. You know, what does America look like, or what does the world look like at that time? In either case, none of this is pleasant. We've just had national politicians uh, uh, proclaim that there should be a, a, a national energy policy of a Green New Deal. Uh, I think the message might be right five years from now. I hope we're not going to be saying they were, they were uh, prescient about what the future is like, but we really need to change what's going on in the United States of America. We've lost the late, we lost the last eight years in New Jersey, and I, I am a partisan. So if you get offended, you know, just throw a cup at me. We lost it. We lost a lot of progress we had made in New Jersey in those eight years, and the last two years have been a disaster nationally in terms of energy policy. My personal opinion. So back to the summary: we're screwed, and we we need to change what's going on. And democracy is a cumbersome system. We need an effort like we in America did in the Second World War. We need that kind of a national effort to get us back on track and seriously reducing greenhouse gases. So if you want to have a warmer upper for New Jersey, New York Times uh, about four weeks ago had a great article on if you were really serious about reducing greenhouse gases, what would you do? And they had the seven best things you could do. Well, two of them we're going to put into bills in New Jersey, and they should be, I'm hoping they'll be introduced before the, the, the end of March. One is it going to say is a, a, a requirement that all of our utilities by 2040 or 2050, probably 2050, switch to all non-carbon sources of fuel. So, yes, renewables, yeah, wind, solar, yes, energy efficiency. Yes, nuclear, which may be, get some people crazy, but it's carbonless. But we really have to change what's going on, not just in the state, but in the country and in the world. Second one, believe it or not, we still have HFCs around. I don't know if you've been watching that, but we still have them around. They have a, a huge multiple impact, like 50, 100 times that of carbon dioxide. And we're going to have legislation to regulate the HFCs in New Jersey. 
But New Jersey can't be the only one that's doing this stuff, and we're not. There's about six states that are kind of progressive in the United States of America and are doing what's some of the things that are necessary. But we really have to get serious, because otherwise your grandkids are not going to have a real good time on this planet. And um, I'm hope, hoping the Bill Spadias and the Tom Morans kind of calm down, maybe get a little more objective about what's going on. So that's a little warmer upper, unless you'd like some more. So let me pass it. Well, what, we'll move on and head back to you. Geraldine's next. Geraldine's deputy general counsel and manage, managing director for the environment for PSEG. Geraldine. So good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you for inviting me today. I'm very happy to be here to participate. I think it really is a much needed, urgently needed conversation and we're glad to be a part of it. Um, thank you, Senator Smith, for taking part. And I think it's also fair to say that at PSEG, we share the collective impatience for action. Um, and I think you'll hear some of the echoes uh, of Scott Wiener's uh, discussion this morning, because we really need comprehensive policy and prioritization. Um, and the utility role is essential, but it's a changing role, and collaboration is also essential. So as an energy company, we have a special responsibility with respect to climate change. And we have been saying for a decade that climate change is one of the, is the preeminent challenge of our time, um, and we need to take action, and aggressive action to address that. We're enthusiastic about the vision, the program that Governor Murphy and Senator Smith and others have laid out. And we have a special responsibility as an energy company to reduce greenhouse gases that have the most devastating impacts as a result of climate change. We need to try to mitigate those impacts. And we're also, as a utility, uniquely positioned to accelerate our response to climate change. So clean air, healthy climate, it's a driving force behind a transformation at PSEG, which is from our first century as a traditional gas and electric utility to the next century as a national clean energy leader. And we've got a strong record on clean energy. We're the largest solar developer in New Jersey with an investment of over $1.7 billion in solar resources. We're supporting New Jersey's efforts to become a leader on offshore wind. And we're continuing efforts to preserve New Jersey's nuclear fleet. And that generates more than 90% of the carbon-free electricity in the state. And most recently, we proposed a sweeping $4 billion program called Clean Energy Future. And that program calls for investments in energy efficiency, electric vehicle charging infrastructure, energy storage, and AMI, advanced metering. That's one of the most significant steps in this transition of PSE to be a green energy provider in New Jersey. So our proposals, we think they're ambitious, they're far reaching, and they're really looking to transform the energy sector. 
and they have benefits for public health and safety, reliability, resiliency. They create jobs and they also ultimately create savings for customers. We already have one of the smallest carbon footprints of any energy company in the US thanks in large part to transition from power plants that burn coal to low and zero carbon resources. And as a result of that, we were able to reduce our carbon emissions by approximately 20% over a period of three years. As we talked about this morning, the governor signed the legislation to achieve complete decarbonization of New Jersey's energy supply by 2050. We can't possibly achieve that goal unless nuclear is part of the mix. With the recent closure of Oyster Creek, we see that nuclear power is replaced with fossil fuel generation. In the case of Oyster Creek, two-thirds of the replacement power came from in-state natural gas generation. And the rest came from out of state, primarily natural gas and coal. So closing New Jersey's nuclear plants would add approximately 15 million tons per year of greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere. So someday solar, offshore wind can fill that void. But today those renewables provide less than 4.8% of New Jersey's electricity. Nuclear provides 40%. So to successfully address climate change, we need very urgently to do a number of things. We need to reduce energy consumption. Energy efficiency is the most effective investment that we can make. We need to quickly and affordably expand renewable resources, preserve carbon-free nuclear. So meeting this challenge, as many have said today, it's not only urgent, but it requires a new way of thinking. For the utility sector, we need to look at our business models. We need to reconsider and realign those with reductions in carbon being at the forefront. And we also, we need policymakers, legislators and regulators to think differently as well. So the energy sector will need public policy support we're going to need the policy framework. We're going to need the prioritization to make the changes that we need as quickly as possible. And so that's why this discussion is so timely. Building a low carbon future is really a massive civil works project. And we are committed to doing our part at PSCG and taking a leading role in New Jersey's low carbon future. <coughs> Thank you, um, Geraldine. Next up is uh, Nicole Sitterman from Sunrun. She's Director, Senior Manager for Public Policy. Thank you for the promotion. Um, I'm very glad to be here. Thank you so much for including Sunrun in this really important discussion. Um, I just want to acknowledge the, the amazing masterclass that we just had by Scott Wiener. I was taking copious notes. Um, it was a, a really great presentation, and I really appreciate it, um, because you raised really important issues that we really have to bring to the forefront of the conversation. So 
you heard the overview about Sunrun and, and what we do. We are a residential uh, solar plus storage company. We've been operating um, in New Jersey serving consumers for a number of years. Um, and our worldview is that customers, consumers, the people, how they use, choose to use or not use energy is our most valuable energy resource. And so we are looking to empower customers to use renewable sources such as solar and uh, distributed energy resources such as battery storage so that they can be empowered to control their energy usage and in aggregate manner altogether um, really assist the grid in becoming more resilient, more reliable, more sustainable. Um, a couple of points that I wanted to make is that as we move forward in mapping out New Jersey's clean energy future, we really need to be anchored in some key principles around competition, around consumer choice, around affordability, but also around social justice. So we cannot have a, you know, there's a lofty goal of decarbonizing the grid, which is really important in this age of climate change. These severe weather events aren't going to decrease, they're only going to increase as we move forward and we recognize the importance of um, reducing carbon emissions overall. But we have to remember that people are involved here, families are involved here, um, and um, we need to build a future that enables more families, particularly those disproportionately impacted by fossil fuel combustion and pollution, that those communities have a stake, an economic stake, not just as employees or, or consumers, um, but as owners, as entrepreneurs in the communities where they live. Um, so we need to, to, as we think forward, we really need to think big um, about what's possible um, for all communities in New Jersey. Um, so thinking about you know, how can we facilitate greater competition and consumer choice and uh, economic empowerment of the communities that have been left behind, candidly, by um, nationally, by um, by conventional energy um, production, um, and so uh, we're we're very excited to to partner with a lot of different organizations in facilitating that kind of conversation um, around equity and inclusion, um, true equity and inclusion um, uh, around shared solar, around rooftop solar. Um, and uh, looking forward to, to um, the conversation today. I did want to um, just give one more shout out to the presentation that we had today. Um, I really appreciate the point that with respect to the role of the utilities moving forward, we too do not believe that it's a zero sum game. And we believe that we have to facilitate um, more partnerships between DER providers and the utilities and consumers um, in order to, to really build out a more distributed, more, more clean um, and um, resilient grid. Thank you, Nicole. No, next up is Curtis Fisher, Regional Northeast Director for the National Wildlife Federation and a long time fixture at one point in New Jersey. Curtis. Um, hi, everyone, good morning. Um, I wanted just to start out, and, and uh, I think uh, 
uh, Senator Smith uh, took a part of what obviously the National Wildlife Federation and the reason why uh, we're here um, in terms of climate change. But to take one step back, just so folks know, um, the National Wildlife Federation um, is one of the country's largest uh, education and conservation organizations. Uh, in New Jersey, we have over 25,000 members, and we're very proudly affiliated um, with uh, New Jersey Audubon, uh, which is an independent organization, but part of the Federation. We are a true Federation and believe in collaboration, um, partnership, and working across a very diverse, uh, bipartisan approach uh, across a wide spectrum of issues. And um, I think probably there's no doubt that today is an example of uh, the need to think about the diversity um, of the energy marketplace um, and, and how everything has to fall together to achieve a remarkable uh, and unprecedented goal of, uh, as Senator Smith spoke to, uh, decarbonizing uh, energy. I, I would mention just to, that my background, uh, Tom made you know, a statement in terms of working for a few governors, uh, most recently working on the transition team um, here in New Jersey for uh, Governor Murphy, that um, you know, the room here is filled with experts. It's just really impressive to have this uh, forum sold out and the amount of intelligence, spunk, innovation, um, that's in this room brings a lot of joy to me, and I love to meet and talk to each of you individually, and you all could be up here speaking to this. Um, there are some people, luckily uh, for me, um, that have been around for a while, and back in 1993, and I see Lyle Rawlings in the room, um, when there was not much of a, a solar program, um, or and Scott's uh, point uh, in 1990 when we were just talking about dem demand-side management, I mean, there has been an amazing transformation. Uh, Scott mentioned that. And I think that the bringing together of the economics along with this incredible goal, a social justice goal of cleaning the environment, um, climate change and critical, critical, getting rid of carbon, but there's a whole set of other resources which other all of you are working on in terms of the water infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, uh, the telecommunications infrastructure, all these uh, incredibly important uh, resources that our state has that really distinguishes us against other states. And I think that the investment that has been made going back to early legislation in the 90s to um, make it available for innovators and entrepreneurs to create companies in New Jersey and create jobs and the labor movement here in New Jersey has been spectacular, and that ha is what I think is where the, su the success is going to be. And if you look at tele all these other industries in terms of telecommunications, every there's unique aspects to each, um, but tapping into the reality that we have a climate crisis, but we also have an economic crisis in this country. And there's a, there, you know, uh, there's a reason Donald Trump got elected. Um, we need, there's a, this is, this is a national issue with a, a very difficult transition that's going to be needed. New Jersey, we're in some ways lucky um, where we're not, uh, as uh, PSNG was mentioning, as reliant on uh, fossil fuel and specifically coal. Um, so we, we need to be the leaders. The National Wildlife Federation, when I left New Jersey state government, took this job as regional director, we uh, prioritized uh, the uh, to support responsible offshore wind development, 
10 years ago, we built a coalition of diverse or, uh, organizations and people uh, from Maine to Florida to speak to the potential of offshore wind and the need to do it responsibly. Uh, and we're really excited if you think about what, again, another example, there's now state uh, governors have committed 15,000 megawatts of offshore wind uh, by 2035. And that that's just amazing. And there's going to be more. But I look at, um, I'm perfectly happy to, you know, some people don't, don't mention other countries and their success stories, but I think it's critical. Offshore wind in the UK is going to deliver 10% of their energy needs by 2020. They're projected to have 30% by 2030. So this is possible. And I think that when we talk about the problem, it sometimes sucks the oxygen for me out of my lungs, how horrible, um, and speaking of wildlife who don't have a voice, the mass extinction that is currently happening in across the world uh, and in the United States, and not just with the mega, you know, beautiful, iconic species, but whether they be, you know, from butterflies and everything that is going on. This is something that can sap energy, and I think we need to ramp up the need for innovation and taking advantage of people's uh, incredible uh, intelligence and interest in changing the world, but also uh, to create jobs and economic development, because ultimately, New Jersey, we are not a fossil fuel state. And the more we reduce waste, which the grid and individual homes have enormous, despite all our great programs, the grid itself it has enormous opportunities to eliminate waste. Our homes can continue to uh, come down in terms of energy use. There's a range of different things that are possible. So I'm, I'm optimistic, um, even though knowing that the task is going to take an enormous amount of time and energy by all of us and our children. Can I just say one last thing about the children? Is there, there's, it doesn't look like that we actually have any children. They're luckily at school for us, right? Um, but the, not today. Some are actually, right, today's the climate strike. So I would just mention that one of the things in my work that I think I made, you know, people, I always like when people ask me, what was the biggest mistakes you made, whether when I was in government or I was lobbying in Trenton? One of the biggest mistakes we made is we made this enormous infrastructure investment um, in solar and energy efficiency. We changed schools, we put all these things into schools, but we didn't do as much on education. And we set these goals, and I think it's great that elected officials come out and support them, but if we don't have the, the children with the skill set and STEM to, uh, to affect that change, we are absolutely wasting our time. So I think that we need to also bring in education advocates and other people into that mix. Thank you, Curtis. Scott, I also want to thank you for your talk. I thought you made a number of hugely important points, one being energy efficiency should be at the top of the hierarchy. Yet here we are in New Jersey. Um, before uh, we uh, have a new budget for the next fiscal year, Senator Smith, we're going to, New Jersey's going to probably make investment in two, Huge issues. One, subsidizing nuclear power plants and choosing uh, developers for offshore wind. That's going to cost billions of dollars. Where's energy efficiency? If it's the top priority, some of the panelists today up here said the same thing. Why, why are we moving ahead committing all these resources uh, when we're not doing this uh, establishing priorities or rankings that uh, 
Scott talked about. Senator Smith, you want to try that? Sure, I'll take a The state doesn't have energy efficiency on the top of its list. Did I hear that Joe Fiordalisa was here? I saw Upendra, but I didn't see Joe. Oh, BPU people, raise your hand. We're, oh, Sarah's here. All right. And Sarah, by the way, uh, heads up uh, the clean energy program in BPU, uh, one of which things that it does is to provide financial support for things like energy efficiency programs around the state. I also submit to you that we now have our utilities were in their heads, and they also see it as a profit center. So don't think it's just all altruism, but you're seeing a major energy efficiency program being put forward by public service, and the other utilities are in that same mode, and they're being encouraged to do so by BPU. Uh, we have legislation that hasn't passed, and Gus Escher will will slap me upside the head, called PACE, Property Assessed Clean Energy, which is going to provide a whole new source of funding for private property owners to make their uh, properties more energy efficient using the lowest cost money that's uh, available to them. So there are, there are many efforts to do so, but go back to Tom Moran. We're killing everybody. We're killing people in the state of New Jersey because we're raising those rates where people can't pay the bills. All right. Well, one of the things that we're trying to encourage private sector wise and public sector with programs like uh, the ones that Sarah is running is to, is to do as much energy efficiency as possible, theoretically to lower the bill. Right. But there's no free lunch. You don't get energy efficiency without making an investment. And the, the question is, where's the money? And the answer to that is, I think you're going to see a better societal benefits portion being used for energy efficiency in the new state budget than you have in past budgets. Uh, one of the problems in state government is we're broke. Uh, there's a surprise for everybody. And we have been stealing money from societal benefits and other places. Uh, and I'm going to, I, what I'll say to you is I think you're going to see a happier budget with regard to energy efficiency programs coming out of the societal benefits portion of the budget. So we're not doing enough, but we are going to do more. And this is a green governor, you know, so last eight years, not so good. I th things are getting better on this side. Can I offer also um, some input on uh, the energy efficiency um, question? Um, you know, we've talked about uh, PS's um, clean energy future filing, which is a really historic um, uh, filing uh, covering a wide range of uh, topics, the largest portion of that is the, the big energy efficiency case. Um, and related to the issue of stakeholder engagement, transparency, um, and consumer engagement, cases like that require, in my view, require as many stakeholders at the table that you can have because of the massive impacts and investments being proposed <laughs> related to energy efficiency and energy efficiency related kind of pilots, um, I would, I would uh, say that it's really important in those types of cases to have you know, equitable access to, to, to the table, have a seat at the table as the phrase is, um, uh, for all um, consumers to, to have some input on whether the proposal is in fact cost effective, who gets to benefit from um, what's being proposed, 
um, and whether it is, you know, what is being proposed is the least cost option um, available. There we go. <laughs> um, one of the things, we are concerned about costs. We're focused on costs. Uh, and one of the comments that I will make is that compared to the average customer bill 10 years ago, costs are down 30%. And if you account for inflation from that time period, then costs are down 40%. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't very closely scrutinize all of the costs that we incur and make sure that they're prioritized correctly. Um, but if you take into account approval of all of the filings that PSEG currently has before the Board of Public Utilities, um, then you would see an increase there in customer bills that's basically comparable with inflation rates of two or three, two to three percent. So I think that's that's a success story in terms of taking advantage of the fact that bills at the moment are, law, are lower to be able to do some of the essential work that we need to get done. Um, and the other thing that I would say is um, having made the clean energy filing, I think it gives a real concrete example. There are specifics, there's research that's gone into it so that we have an actual proposal. We're not talking in the abstract. And I think that jumpstarts the conversation and gets us where we need to be. Yeah, just, yeah I was just going to say, and that's really interesting data. And um, what the good part and one bad part in terms of foreshadowing, um, one is in terms of cost. I mean, again, I'm thinking about the transportation infrastructure and electricity is king. Um, and the things that we need to do to get to where we want to be in terms of our economy and obviously the environment, um, you know, look at transportation, right? Uh, the congestion pricing. Um, this has been a controversial issue, but my point being is, is that we need to be innovators and in thinking about price. It's not just um, obviously the rate. Um, as PSG mentioned, it's about the bill as a whole. Um, but then the other part is is noting let let's be realistic. We're living under the, an enormous. I wish I knew I could have predicted the natural gas boom in terms of from an economic standpoint. Um, and the, the prices that you're mentioning, which is totally appropriate, are due directly to a boom boom in natural gas. When we know that we're trying to move away in terms of decarbonization, we have to recognize that that's going to be a big challenge um into the future so i think that's important i'd also mentioned and having worked with aarp for decades uh to ensure and pscng and other utilities have done a good job i believe in this area is making sure that there is uh programs for low income new jersey citizens just like when we think about it from an education standpoint we want to increase the incentive for people that can't afford to get into the system to get them into the system um absolutely from an equity uh, basis. Sure. Um, and, and I agree completely that uh, with both of you actually that the environmental justice component of this is key and frankly we see that as one of our advantages as a universal service provider. The customer relationship and the experience with the programs being able to bring 
the educational piece as well to our customer base. Senator Smith, you mentioned something uh, earlier about you have two bills. I can't let you uh, go without explaining how you see uh, utilities becoming carbon-free by uh, 2050, especially on the natural gas side where 75% of our customers, uh, homeowners, uh, people use natural gas to heat their homes. It's called transition. That's why I didn't say 2022. The, uh, every one of our utilities uh, has a predicted lifespan for any plants that they have. So as plants are phasing out, the new sources should be offshore, solar, nuclear, uh, even efficiency. But they need to do that transition. I mean, we're not going to become carbonless if we keep on saying keep on using carbon. So yeah, you, you, you got to get tough. You got to say this is the way, and we can set that as a public policy. That's it is within our jurisdiction. It's not. It's not. If you give people a period of time to transition, uh, amortize, plants depreciate, they get old. It, you just want to say the new ones have to be carbonless. Yeah, but uh, at the same time, uh, it's maybe nine or ten pipe natural gas pipelines proposed sure. in New Jersey. Five power, uh, natural gas powered plants. Yep, yep, yep. And that, uh, How do you deal with it? Yeah. Do, do we need a moratorium, as many people in this room? Well, number one, ask. Advocating. Love it, too, but you got a constitution. It gets in the way. You, If you're going to take property or take rights, you got to be willing to pay for them. Tom Moran's out there again saying we're killing everybody by raising uh, race. I mean, we, we could do that, you know, and in every town there's the development that nobody likes. And they say to the mayor and council, why don't you buy that property? If you buy the property under the constitution, you're in great shape. Fifth amendment. It's not rights against self-incrimination. It's if you take property, government's got to pay for it. So I don't think that works, but do we need a national change in our policy about this stuff? Absolutely. And right now we have FERC, controlled by the barbarians and uh, you know really I mean why who could who could justify building 15 pipelines in the state there's no there's been no uh, showing of the need for all of these number so why are you ripping up every place around the state and then number two we should have a national policy of co-location why are you re-ripping or not re-ripping, why are you having these things going all over the state, whether or not they're needed or not, and going through everybody's backyard, which gets everybody crazy in whatever town it is, uh, when there's, first, you don't have a, a shown need, and secondly, if you co-located pipelines, you would not be going into new locations and driving everybody nuts. But that's not even the big policy. The big policy is getting out of the carbon world. And uh, someday we'll have a national administration that will have a cap-and-trade policy or a societal cost-of-carbon policy, which is absolutely needed to get out of the business, and then a national policy to go with carbonless fuels. And it may mean more nuclear. If you get a chance, go to France. A hell of a place. So 80% of their electricity is nuclear. They have a national nuclear uh, 
uh, depository site, they, their rates are 60% of our rates. And the public in France loves them. And they're, they're full disclosure. They have hearings about everything they're doing. And they also do uh, nuclear waste reprocessing, which we don't. We made a, Jimmy Carter made a decision that we were afraid that terrorists would steal plutonium or whatever our nuclear fuels were and develop uh, nuclear weapons. In France, they have triple lines of security around their plant, their, their uh, uh, reprocessing facilities. They dispose of it properly, cheap rates. They export electricity to the rest of Europe. And by the way, that's not saying I'm the world's greatest fan of nuclear, but it's proved to me that it can be done safely and no carbon. And when the next Sandy or the next 10 Sandys hit, and everybody says, holy God, we're spending trillions on damage, insurance, killing our businesses and our industries, somebody's going to come to the, to the conclusion that there needs to be a national wartime-like effort to change the way in which we do energy in this country. I just, I have to respond. <laughs> um, um, I appreciate that uh, point of view. Um, but I also just, for the record, just want to say that nuclear does not, is not problem-free. Um, and that um, throughout the country there are very serious um, environmental justice uh, implications of, of siting of nuclear plants um, and, and harm to, to, to certain communities. But I also want to just um, return back to the um, kind of original question about the, um, the, the uh, fossil-free uh, power plant. Um, just want to, to remind us <laughs> of the role that distributed solar uh, in aggregate form can, can have in uh, deferring and avoiding the need or additional um, infrastructure that, that's not necessary. Um, we are very interested in working with stakeholders um, throughout the East Coast and across the country on um, developing the concept of the virtual power plant, um, aggregating uh, customer-sited solar plus storage uh, for the benefit of the grid um, in in uh, New England, my colleagues, I had nothing to do with this, but I'll you know I'm so glad to to be working with them. They had a tremendous victory recently in ISO New England, uh, where Sunrun basically we won uh, a bid in the capacity markets um, to provide 20 megawatts of aggregated uh, residential solar plus uh, storage uh, come 2022. Um, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a major, major um, feat. It's never been done before where behind the meter residential resources can be utilized for the benefit of, um, of all rate payers at the wholesale level in that fashion. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're very interested in, in certainly in New Jersey and having that conversation of, of how that can potentially happen here, given that, you know, New Jersey has already established itself as such a leader in residential solar. Let's take it to the next level and really make sure that we utilize um, solar and battery storage here in a way that um, truly does um, give um, as much benefit to all ratepayers as possible. Um, I, I would just say, um, you know, for one of the market realities and, and to the audience here in terms of uh, concern about the natural gas pipelines and um, 
uh, plants is, as we all know, right, most of that is due to the regional energy market and the fact that a lot of energy is being sucked in by New York City. Um, having a job that's regionally, I would just mention, uh, there's lots of proposals to take transmission lines and run them across Lake Champlain and through Maine to bring cheaper power down into Boston. And obviously, New Jersey is experiencing that. So as a principal, I think going to my point about economic development, does New Jersey want to be a transport state or does it want to be the home of energy production? And trying to prioritize the energy production in terms of energy efficiency, solar and offshore wind as jobs that are going to stay and that are labor intensive um, versus being a, uh, just simply a place um, that, you know, gas or energy is flowing um, to a more congested area. I think that's one. Um, the other thing I just mentioned, just because I was around long enough uh, for energy deregulation in New Jersey, um, one of the things that we lost for folks who are familiar with it was the Electric Facility Need Assessment Act, which was a brilliant uh, piece of legislation. Um, but we, when we deregulated the generation side of the equation, we no longer require that a facility has to assess whether that actually facility is needed. Um, we also lost a lot of integrated resource uh, planning uh, by utilities. So I think that that's something that, you know, we, for folks who here who are concerned that we need to start looking at what is our criteria for when siting occurs, not just the requirements to meet environmental emission standards and other uh, uh, Clean Water Act and Clean Air Act requirements. I think you want to weigh in. Yeah, let me. There's a lag time. Um, let me just say that while the renew and we we are supportive of offshore wind, we're supportive of solar, um, and we're supportive of storage. Um, but there is going to be a need for some level of continuing baseload power while all of these resources are added to the grid. And I, I would just say that's one of the reasons that we think it's so important to preserve nuclear, um, because if you don't have that 40% of New Jersey power, Right, that is going to be resulting in increased in-state generation, as I said, from natural gas. Um, and not only that, but it, because we are a regional market in PJM, you're going to see substantial imports from out of state. And so New Jersey can be as aggressive and clean as it wants to be, um, particularly with the idea of rejoining Reggie. Um, but as we are uh, imposing costs through allowances in Reggie and reducing New Jersey's profile with respect to emissions, we have to take into account that replacement power, because of the way energy is dispatched, um, may come, is going to come from dirtier out-of-state generation. Um, and I think we can't, we can't lose sight of that and the importance of the nuclear plants in preventing that from occurring. Um, that sort of brings us to a question that was asked by, uh, submitted by one of you people in the audience. Um, what will New Jersey's power generation look like in 2024 and 2029? And I think that's a good question considering uh, the governor wants uh, 
3,500 megawatts of offshore wind. 40%, we now get 40% of our electricity from nuclear, as Geraldine said, and 40% from uh, natural gas. So something has to give by 2030, especially if we reduce our energy uh, consumption by 20%, as this Clean Energy Act suggested. So what will be the mix, and what loses out? If he was here, I don't think I would dare ask him publicly what these proposals came in at. You know, they, they've accepted. It's uh, a big question. Ooh, wait, wait, wait till you see that number. All right. So, but my guess, that being said, on the 2029, I think we'll have 1,100 megs. I think we'll have that first phase either under construction or. Um, it's kind of hard to say possibly in operation because time and energy have an inverse relationship to some extent. But the, I, do, uh, I do think we're going to get a, 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 serious, a significant offshore wind farm. And at that point, the public and the state will be able to really evaluate costs. Because now you're going to have either operating or you're going to have the construction costs. It's going to be unbelievably expensive. All right. Uh, there's there's nothing cheap in this business. In fact, in fact, the problem is sometimes cheap. Capitalism doesn't is not always in your best interest. All right, and the the problem with natural gas, even though it's better than coal, there's less emissions. You still have more carbon emissions. And by the way, I, I'm sure you've seen the national and international statistics. Our our carbon emissions are greater than they've ever been. You know, and that's even with more renewables being used around the world. There's still a, uh, I think it's a 1.8% increase in the United States and something like that uh, or greater worldwide, even with more renewables. And the re reason for that is with the economy uh, moving, there's uh, only 25% of the new demand for energy is being covered by the renewables, the other 75% by the, by the traditional uh, carbon sources. So, you know, we've got to do something and we've got to do it relatively quickly. Wind is a good alternative, but it, it's not going to be cheap. Tom Moran, you're killing, you're killing old retired women. Hold on, Dad. I think I got to get a, a job former now defending of, Tom Moran. If the, yeah, I'm a former <laughs> colleague of Tom Moran and a friend, and I got to defend him. He's not a villain. He's a nice guy. He's not a villain, but that was a little extreme to say we're personally responsible for the death of this woman. Well, I, I would. Oh, well, I guess Tom. Yeah, I think that it's really important to have lots of different voices. So whether people protesting today in terms of walking out of schools or um, a whole set of public policy issues, I, I think that. Uh, is a good thing. Peaceful um, disagreement is great. I, I, I'm much more. I'm much more optimistic about um, New Jersey and, generally speaking, the Northeast of the United States in terms of this issue of clean energy. Uh, Sarah's here, so she can best speak for the Board of Public Utility. But I believe not only um, do we have the current 1,100 megawatt solicitation, but my understanding is there's a schedule specifically to release another. Uh, solicitation um, in approximately a year, and I forget the exact timing, Scott would know it, but the bottom line is is that in the queue is significant 
um, offshore wind development. Um, and I expect that there's going to be much more. Last week, I was at a similar roundtable with Governor Baker. Governor Baker from Massachusetts, who um, just the two most popular uh, governors in the United States right now are Governor Baker and Hogan in Maryland. Um, Governor Baker, uh, when he ran for office, was con this is right after Cape Wind, was eh, eh, on offshore wind. And I can tell you, reporting back from Massachusetts, that there's not many people right now who are a bigger advocate for offshore wind, specifically on price. Um, now, price gets tricky, like Senator Smith mentioned, uh, in terms of the raw price. Massachusetts has a different law than um, New Jersey and really pushed down the cost as the major public policy. And I think that New Jersey actually got it right when they were speaking to net benefits and, again, going to creating jobs and looking at the whole package, because I think going to environmental justice, our ports and the surrounding communities need a major infusion of jobs and efforts to try to clean up those areas and offshore wind holds a significant potential for that. So the price, uh, which is public record, so I'm not saying anything, was 6.5 cents. They estimated that because they're locking in at 6.5 cents in Massachusetts, they're saving approximately $1.4 billion. In terms of performance, you know, one of the things that doesn't get often stated, uh, but because we've got a lot of energy wonks in the room, um, winter uh, uh, demand for electricity is a unique situation where we are using uh, gas to heat our homes. So um, the cost obviously goes up. Offshore wind is a great, has actually significant benefits within the grid to be supplying a very sustainable source of energy uh, to bring down those costs during we winter. So we have actually offshore wind turbines spinning in the United States. I encourage everyone to go to Block Island. Uh, we do trips of over 200 people out there. So that it, there's performance occurring. And like I said, whether it be in other countries, dramatically larger. So I expect um, that New Jersey is actually going to see larger goals. Governor Cuomo, in his last state of the state address in New York, uh, proposed a dramatic expansion of offshore wind, um, 9,000 megawatts by 2035. So uh, New Jersey is at 3,500, uh, but with the boards, very, uh, which we support, uh, aggressive schedule, there's a lot of room before 2030 for additional solicitations. Thank you, Curtis. Um, Nicole, uh, a lot of people uh, asked questions uh, on a when they signed up for uh, the event on energy storage. Uh, state has some pretty aggressive goals for energy storage, 600 megawatts uh, by 2021. How do you see New Jersey evolving in this area? Because we really have done very little so far. Uh, that's a great question. And um Senator is really pleased to be a part of the, the process, um, providing input on the, the pending um, the study um, and having a lot of conversations um, with a variety of stakeholders about um, how do we move forward with um, battery storage in the state, given that we've, New Jersey is such a leader in residential storage, so, solar, excuse me, it just makes sense. Um, so uh, again, in order to kind of uh, kickstart the market, um, there are some kind of building blocks that we think need to be um, uh, 
um, a part of the process. Um, and one, the first one that immediately comes to mind, and I'm not an engineer, and I highly value uh, my engineer colleagues um, on this point, but interconnection, uh, the contemplating uh, battery storage and the interconnection procedures um, and practices um, in this state is, will be really critical. Um, and also, uh, uh, we, we would encourage a review of the uh, incentive program um, that the clean energy program had done on the commercial side, um, but kind of reviving that uh, to, to, to allow for incentiv to incentivizing residential uh, battery storage um, so that we can encourage more customers to um, be able to have a greater home resiliency during, um, during severe weather events and, and outages. Um, but also, you know, I was talking with my friend Pari at Vote Solar, and uh, we are really thinking through um, for New Jersey um, how we can um, encourage the deployment of solar plus battery storage um, for multifamily affordable housing um, in the communities that, that need these benefits the most. So. Um, New Jersey's community solar uh, program um, has a significant carve out for LMI. We would encourage that same kind of approach to battery storage um, um, as, as we kind of develop um, that program in the state. Um, just figuring out the financing um, to encourage um, solar plus battery storage um, in, in urban communities, multifamily affordable housing. And, um, you know, we think that that really when we're talking about the question of uh, what what should come first in our in our set of priorities that should come first focusing on the communities that need these resources the most who have high energy burdens are struggling to make ends meet solar plus battery storage really is a bread and butter issue so um that would be kind of uh, top of mind okay we'll have to ask sarah about that in the following panel but geraldine yeah, um, just wanted to point out that part of our clean energy future filing is energy storage of 35 megawatts by 2024. Um, and that would be an expectation of creating 300 jobs in connection with that. But that has a number of benefits. It allows better integration of renewables um, into the grid, enhanced reliability of critical infrastructure, and it also allows, in some instances, deferral of investment in distribution. And it allows for better outage management. So there are a lot of benefits to that. It's a current proposal. We do have uh, a pilot program right now where we have microgrid systems that are at critical, critical infrastructure locations. Um, at, we have them at a high school, hospital, um, Department of Public Works, um, wastewater treatment plants. So I think it's, it's obviously a key aspect and it's something that is gonna get us toward the 600 megawatt um, state requirement by 2021. I'd just like to, to add one point um, that um, has been raised a lot today. <laughs> and that is as another key kind of foundational principle as we move forward is you know really asking the question who gets to own who who gets to be an owner moving forward um and while it's we really do applaud the utility for for its leadership and thinking through these issues um 
we have to kind of think not just five years ahead or 10 years ahead, but really 20 years ahead in terms of um, what kind of marketplace we really want um, for New Jersey. Um, and so we would just encourage greater conversation around competition um, in the deployment of distributed energy resources because it's really going to be essential um, in building up communities and, and community revitalization. And a lot of communities in New Jersey need it urgently. You raise a very good point. Um, the, uh, there's a private sector out there that's seeking to compete in these uh, areas, uh, uh, electrifying the transportation system, energy storage, solar. Um, but the clean energy regulation, uh, energy efficiency, the clean energy uh, law puts uh, a big part of that responsibility on the utilities. Is, is it too much? Uh, and is it crowding out private investment and having the private sector do what uh, ratepayers may end up uh, paying for? Very, very valid concern. The, um, you know, everybody has different motivations here. Well, the end motivation is profit. But the, uh, in the case of utilities, as I said earlier, it's not just altruism. It's also increasing rate base. And that's, that's our utility system for the last 100 plus years. Okay. And it's not a bad thing. But private sector frequently finds ways to do things better, more efficiently, and still make money. And I, I would urge Sarah to bring back to Joe Fiordaliso that as we establish rules and do rate filings, we have to make sure that the private sector can be a full partner in this. Um, you know, what, one of the issues right now on the offshore wind is whether or not the developer of the offshore wind also has to be the uh, transmitter. And... I, I think a very valid case can be made for allowing private sector to bid on the uh, transmission portion of that. I think the BPU the first time around is taking a very conservative approach and they're kind of combining them together. But I don't think after you have your first test case that you really want to do that. You want private sector to be active and totally engaged in this. So uh, we have to make sure that the BPU does that. They're trying to make their voices heard. I know that. So, I guess, uh, are we out of time? Two minutes. Okay. Sure. But we are blessed in New Jersey to have some really smart people. And I would direct your attention to the Rutger, to Rutgers University, the New Jersey Climate uh, Adaptation Alliance. Uh, so, for example, I just brought one of their uh, booklets, which is a guide to policy options. They follow New Jersey very closely. They know where we are in all of our laws. They, they point out the failures, you know, the things we haven't done that we said we were going to do and that should be done, and other policies that would be very good for the state. So if you get a chance, you know, get on the Internet, tune in. There's some really great information. All right. Um uh, I guess we've sort of run out of time. Uh, I want to thank the panelists. I wish we could have them up here for another hour. And they did a great job.
And I think we're going to take a short, real quick five-minute break, and we'll come back for the second panel. Yes, promptly starting at 10.15. Thank you. All right. Uh, we're going to start because time is uh, wasting. First off, I'll introduce uh, Larry Barth from New Jersey Natural Resources. Uh, and he's been a frequent panelist on our roundtables, and we're happy to have him back. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. Let's go panel two. All right. Um, it's interesting that I was here last year talking about um, our clean energy future, and I just took a look back and I said, you know, last year at this time, we got about 3.9% of our total consumption from renewable resources in the state. And fast forward to a year from now, which is where we are today, um, we're at about 4.5%. So um, I, I put those numbers out there just to give us some context of, you know, if we're going at a pace of about 0.6% a year, then, you know, mark your calendars for 2178 because that's when we're going to hit our 100% clean energy goal. Um, and I don't say that with any degree of criticism because I know there's a lot of things going on right now, but we really absolutely have to focus on changing that trajectory. You know, all the things that we might want to talk about in terms of the, the future state, you know, the utility of the future, you know, the new regulatory paradigms, how the wholesale markets and retail markets are going to evolve, uh, the role of distributed energy resources. You know, those are going to largely be academic discussions unless we can start to get more traction um, on our clean energy goals. So I'm really kind of channeling, I think, some of what some folks have said here today about, you know, the need to, to you know, I, I guess one of the statements was we're screwed, um, a recognition of the problem and an identification of the problem. The good news is we have a plan now. Under Governor Murphy's leadership, he has put out there a plan. Now, we just need to implement that plan, and that's what we need to be ruthlessly focused on and, and ruthlessly prioritize making that plan happen. So I think, you know, and we'll listen to Sarah about this, but I, I think there's a lot of good things to be thinking about. First of all, you know, the offshore wind goal, it looks like the BPU has made some pretty good progress on that uh, in terms of getting the incentive structure going, you know, really trying to drive that RFP now so that we capitalize on the production tax credit. I think there's a lot of good news there. We'll all be interested to hear more about the transmission plan. But, um, you know, there's a lot of good things happening there, and offshore wind is really going to contribute a lot to, to, to meeting our, our 2030 goal of 50%. Solar, um, we've seen some good action from the BPU in terms of putting out the straw proposal on the solar market transition. Um, but we need to move faster. Right now, we are waiting for some of the key terms of the interim program that is going to keep solar going while we develop the long-term successor plan. We, we, we like a lot of what the BPU put out. We also need to recognize that, you know, we, we're, we got this 50% by 2030 goal. If you go through all the math of it, we're at about 75 million megawatt hours in the state now. If we get our 2% annual energy efficiency savings, we're down to about 60 million megawatt hours. We gotta get a 30 million megawatt hours from renewables 
in the next 10 years. Now, offshore wind, when we're successful there, we'll get about 14 of the 30. The existing solar will chip in about four. That leaves a gap of about 12. Solar is going to play a role in filling that gap. Now, how much is it going to be? Is it going to be all of it? Is it going to be half of it? Don't know. We need a long-term goal for solar that fits with our 2030 plan. We need to perfect some of the new programs that are coming out that'll let large-scale solar projects get more, uh, be treated more like retail projects, and that's public net metering, that's community solar. We need to clear up some of the issues with interconnection, and we need to un unlock some of these circuits that are closed for new development. We do those things right, we're, we've got a good runway here for solar to add a significant amount. A number of folks today have talked about energy efficiency. Couldn't agree more. This is going to be the linchpin of helping us uh, meet our objectives and meet our objectives cost effectively. But the bad news is we have a goal of 2% annual energy efficiency savings and we're running at about a third to a fifth of that each year. And how are we going to change that? That's not just going to change by putting the goal on a piece of paper. We've got to be rethinking the, the business model, the customer value proposition, how we accelerate the adoption of this stuff at a much faster pace, um, a lot more push. I do support some of the comments that have been made earlier about, you know, we were discussing some of the utilities role in this. Our natural gas utility, New Jersey Natural Gas, has had a lot of success in reaching a large number of customers, employing a lot of trade allies, getting a lot of energy savings. Um, and we think that that and some of the models that have put, been put forward um, and are in the bill in terms of the utility role are really important and need to be um, need to be set in stone and determined as a real you know course of action going forward for us. Um, and this is not like was discussed earlier a mutually exclusive thing, where it's the utilities or the private sector. Utility enga utilities engage the private sector with energy efficiency. Somebody needs to own the target. Somebody needs to be accountable. So we really need to fundamentally rethink that. It's not a trivial exercise to go from where we are now to where we need to be. Um, we talked about storage. We really, as was mentioned on the previous panel, we're not anywhere yet on storage. We need to figure out the sweet spot on the business model. We need to get going here because we don't know what we don't know yet in, in storage. Um, the BPU's just started an initiative there, but uh, that's something that we got to get going. And EVs, um, you know, that's where over half of our greenhouse gas emissions are coming from. We need to get an EV program out. We're sort of struggling right now to get a rebate program out there um, to get that market going and to get a charging station program going. You know, we're part of the Charge EV Coalition. Uh, if we can't do this, this is a real litmus test. If we can't do this program, you know, what are we doing? You know, we, we probably should all go back to our day jobs. This is one where the opportunity is so huge um, and we need to get it going. And we're not too far either from when this starts to work on its own economically. So big opportunities there. So all this being said, there's a lot of opportunity out there. There's, there's things that we have to execute on. Um, there is also, you know, no one right way as we think about the future there's no one right way to get there we don't know what we don't know on all this stuff um, and we have to be able to execute on what we've got now 
I, th I think there's no silver bullets, there's no absolutes, except as we think about this, let's, let's remember, as has been said by other folks, customers are going to drive this. Customers want affordable, reliable, and clean, but you got to have the first two, and they also want choice. Okay, we got to keep that going. While affordable and reliable are not necessarily on our side now, as we look at some of these new technologies, we're going to need public will, political will. Not everybody supports this with the same degree that some folks do. And so we're going to need to broaden the base on this and get more people involved, which means finding ways to show how this stuff can help them and certainly avoiding things that are going to hurt them. And then technology is going to play a role here. We, we, can, we know about some of those technologies now. 30 years from now, there's technologies we haven't even imagined yet they are going to come to the fore. We need to be open-minded about the, the potential for technology and not preclude any technologies uh, that may come through in the future. All right, with that, thank you. I look forward to participating uh, in the panel. Okay, next up is Frank Felder. Uh, he's a valuable resource for myself and other reporters in New Jersey as director of the Rutgers Energy Institute and other uh, organizations. But glad to have you here today, Frank. How's that? Now we are. Okay, so thank you, thank you, Tom. Thank you, New Jersey Spotlight, and in particular, Tom, for all your efforts and, and today's sponsors. Uh, two quick disc, uh, disclaimers. I'm, I'm involved, along with some colleagues at Rutgers, on two ongoing studies, one on the offshore wind master plan, and the other is on battery storage. So I won't comment on those uh, specifically since the studies are ongoing. Um, and also, I'm just speaking for myself, not for the many colleagues at Rutgers involved in energy and environmental and climate change policy. I think I'm going to take a little different tack than the other panelists, both uh, on this panel and the prior, but we'll see. One is I think we need more attention on the scope and the definition and understanding the problem. This is a huge problem, what we're trying to do in the next 30 years. If you take the goals seriously that have been laid out by this administration, the legislature, which I do, there's nothing wrong with taking a problem seriously. It doesn't mean I'm trying to postpone or delay or, in, or advocate inaction. It means understanding the problem is probably more important posing the right questions than getting to the answers. Answers are easy. Um, questions or good questions are a little bit more difficult. There's a huge amount of uncertainty over the next 30 years on the technology, on the cost, on the combination of uh, programs and policies that will work. And I'll come back to that theme about how to address uncertainty over the next 30 years. If I were to ask three questions with respect to some terms that have been bandied about, one is the term cost. The most uh, litigated word, my understanding in the English language is reasonableness, probably in any language, given how uh, litigious we are in the Western tradition, the English tradition. Um, but on the economic side, engineering the word cost. So if you want two people not to communicate them, ha communicate, have them talk about cost, market cost, direct cost, induced cost, environmental cost, and so forth. So a lot of uh, cross currents occur just because we haven't defined or aren't clear on the use of the word cost. The second is the word jobs. Now, granted, jobs is a shorthand for economic development, for equity issues, but also for number of jobs. But that also depends on the wage rate, the type of jobs, whether or not we're moving one employed person from one sector to another sector. That's not creating a job. That's just shifting a job. So the definition of jobs. Now, with 
any capital project, not just energy, it's easy to see the visible jobs, you know, the construction workers, the operation and maintenance, the, the supply chain and so forth. But these policies have a cost and those costs also affect the economy and those costs also affect employment, economic activity. So those quote jobs need to be considered in the calculus as well. And I think we should be upfront about what those impacts could be um, and at least acknowledge them and in include them in our accounting. Second is, and I appreciate the bind the state has been in the current administration. They feel they are playing catch up over the last eight years or so with the prior administration. They uh, feel like they're sailing against the winds at the federal level. I also understand how the political process works and politics in the sense that you need a rallying cry, you need an organizing principle, you need a way of garnering public support, political support, so that you can then implement your agenda. Get it? But I think we need to have policy actually precede some of the, uh, I'm sorry, analysis, analysis actually precede some of the policies statements. So it's rather easy to lay out goals, and that's very important politically, to organize a government, to get people uh, going in a direction. That I get. But we also need to think about whether or not those goals and objectives should be revised as we get more information down the road. Okay? There's just no way someone can look me in the eye and credibly say they know what the solution is to decarbonization in 2050. No one does, some for the very good reasons Larry laid out. So if I'd ask, I realize that we're trying to play catch up, I realize that we're trying to do a lot of things, I realize we're trying to connect a lot of dots, so to speak, but I would like um, us to be open-minded to that maybe some of these goals or revisions or sub-objectives or programs need to be evaluated and reevaluated over time. I'll come back to that point. The energy master plan process does envision that, right? Because the EMP is updated every three years and presumably, and then a complete rewrite every 10 years, presumably implicit in that is the notion that things change. So I'm not arguing with who gets to set the goals. That's the political process. That's what a democracy is about. But then, given there, how do we rethink, as we learn more information, the relative cost of offshore wind to solar, nuclear, and so, so forth, how do we proceed? Next, I think we need to really think about policy interactions. And I won't go through the long list, but one example is Reggie. When you rejoin Reggie, you now have a cap. If that cap is binding, that affects arguments about whether A, B, or C will increase or decrease emissions, given how the cap is structured. These policies interact, and the fact that we are sitting here going through picture policy, solar, nuclear, energy efficiency, offshore wind, and having these discussions about the relative cost and who decides, and the legislature interact, uh, acts, and then the BPU, and then the, the utilities, all that I think are stemming from the underlying problem, which is we don't have a coherent policy framework. So Scott talked about that framework, but a framework about how we're gonna get from A to B. Right? What combination of markets, incentives, and regulatory mandates are we going to do? It seems to me the current policy in New Jersey is the legislature has a very ad hoc kind of what we'd call in the old world legislative resource planning or legislative resource management. I don't know a lot of things, but one thing I know is there's no question where the right answer is legislative resource management. Right? So either we should have the utilities do it, or we should uh, do it through a market mechanism, through a price and uh, uh, social cost of carbon, or cap and trade, or some variation. But where we're now, where the legislature just doesn't have the technical capability, the staff, the ability to um, draw data, conduct analyses, in order to set particular mandates for this program, for that program, et cetera. So understand, again, why the legislature act and kind of the facts 
that got him into the position that we're at. But I think now we should think, along with everything else that the state is thinking about, how do we rethink the policy architecture and how do we, should we consider moving towards something that's at least more internally consistent? I'm almost done. Two more points. One is evaluation and assessment is critical. If the state is going to achieve its goals, particularly if it's going to do it cost effectively, there needs to be an ongoing continuation, continual evaluation of all programs. Energy efficiency is the, the, the leading example here because you're measuring something that did not happen. It's a but for. So, um, but it's not just uh, unique or limited to that. We really need to evaluate all these various programs, collect the data on an ongoing basis, continue to build up this, uh, the capability of staff in-house in order so that we have the data, we, staff, the state has the data, they have the information, they have the trend lines, they have the expertise so that they can make mid-course corrections and weather the political storms and pushback that are inevitably going to occur. So finally, and given that this is such a long-term problem, I really think the fundamental problem is governance, is institutional credibility. We've talked about so far today competency, transparency, accountability, good governance. If this program, this project is to succeed, the public has to be behind it. There's no ifs and or, or buts. And the way to get the public behind it is not to antagonize them and um, name call them, but to persuade them. Don't win the debate. Persuade them, okay? We know the difference. And in order to do that, I think the state needs to be open to have, and it's, and it's part of these programs as they're being formulated and implemented and managed and updated, is that it's collecting the data, that objective and independent analyses are being done, and the state's willing to hear that, hey, we may need to make an improvement, because you will, we will. There's just no way to get it right today for the next 30 years. So with that, I know everyone really cares about what Sarah has to say, so I'll turn it over to her. Go ahead, Sarah. Hi, I'm Sarah Bloom. I'm the director of the Clean Energy Program at the Board of Public Utilities. And we are in such exciting times at the Board of Public Utilities. And if you haven't met my colleagues around the room, we do actually have other people here too who are more than willing to help you navigate our programs, find energy efficiencies within your buildings, set up programs, and be able to also help share the education. So Mike, Arif, Stephanie. Um, we also have members from our outreach team here of Mary Beth and Yanya. I know I saw them too. So you don't just have to find Sarah. Um, but we are really looking at how we can innovate and how we can change. And while someone said that we may not uh, be the most up-to-date on technology, I will disagree with you on that. And what I'd like you all to do is smile. And if you aren't already following us at NJBPU or at NJ Clean Energy, you should. You can also visit our Facebook page and find different events as well, too. We are doing a great job not only of trying to reach different constituencies and make things more transparent, but also be able to connect with people in, um, I would say, what are more traditional ways nowadays um, through both social media as well as our regular platforms. And I think that that really leads to a lot of um, what has been happening at the board under the past year under President Fiordaliso is that we are also looking at new ways that we can engage with 
the residents of New Jersey and the businesses here. And embracing Governor Murphy's um, platform, both of the innovation economy as well as moving us towards that goal of 100% clean power by 2050. And to that end, I have had the pleasure not only of working at BPU, but really seeing the interagency coordination as we are going on this journey. And one of the things that New Jersey is also very proud of is that we were one of five states selected by the National Governors Association for their Smarter State Initiative. And that's another area where we are looking at how we are collaborating and how we are embracing innovative changes. And through that team's work, we are doing a lot of cross-department interagency workings to see how can we improve government for the better, how can we become a smarter New Jersey, and how can we keep up that work as we are going towards stronger and fairer. And I think that you've been seeing that build over the past year under the Murphy administration. We've had it um, within the economic development agencies, economic growth strategy. Right now we're currently underway with the energy master plan. And I will preface this while there's been other allusions to uh, Sarah has all the answers. I have one of the exciting jobs in government because I am both like covert agent and cheerleader. So there's a lot of things that I can't tell you and you'd all love to see inside my head. But on the other hand, there's a lot of really great things happening too that I'm excited to cheerlead on. And for those of you who haven't seen, we've also done quite a bit of stakeholder engagement this year and a lot of research and thinking too. And we have a stakeholder meeting later today. I may see some of you there. Um, but this really is a time of great opportunity for us. And within the past year, I would say that we've done more than we've done in the past 10 years. But at the same time, we've done more than the speed of government normally happens. And that's also exciting too, to see how we've been able to innovate and be able to move forward so that we have the right data, that we're able to collect it, analyze it, and try and see where it can lead us for policy decisions, but at the same time, we are able to take action on things. And I know you heard some allusions to everything that we are working on right now. Um, we do have the largest state single solicitation for offshore wind currently pending. We are looking at energy storage, microgrids. We are studying financing of microgrids. We are looking at electric vehicles. We just won a competitive solicitation from the DOE to look at electric vehicle car sharing in urban areas um, for low and moderate income. We are looking at many other aspects within energy efficiency. Um, we are looking at microgrid financing as well. That was another competitive grant that the state won. And as we are going forward, I think it has also been exciting that we have been able to add resources to our staff. Um, if anyone is looking, we are still hiring. We're also looking at the future pipeline, and I think that that's another area where President Fioradoliso has been a leader, and we are now offering internships and paying $15 an hour so that we can compete with private sector as we start to develop the future pipeline at BPU and engage students who are learning in this field and make sure that we do have the future leaders who are ready to help make these policy decisions with us. And as we are um, coming up on some of our anniversaries, um, we've made quite a bit of progress. I would say that we're starting to get down to crunch time as we are approaching May and June, but there's a lot more ahead too. And there's many decisions that the board will be taking that will impact the, the future. And I think 
We are also very excited that um, as Governor Murphy continues to plot out how we are achieving our goals for 2030 and 2050, that the BPU has an integral process in that too. And so I look forward to engaging with all of you as well. Thank you, Sarah. Now, uh, Amy Goldsmith from Clean Water Action and a founder of Empower New Jersey. Thank you for um, having me here today. Um, Clean Water Action has uh, 150,000 members here in the state of New Jersey. We work on a wide range of uh, energy, water, environmental justice, uh, climate issues. We work at the ports. Um, so we work on a wide range of issues and maybe somebody has come and knocked on your door one day and asked you to write a letter or make a contribution to our effort. Uh, that means you're a member, so thank you. Um, I'm, uh, I was asked to speak on uh, specifically about the fossil fuel side of it and there's been a lot of conversation today about do we need natural gas, do we need nuclear power? So I would just say that um, we'll never achieve the mandate of the Global Warming Response Act, which is 80% reduction in greenhouse gases by, um, by 2050. We will never reach the executive order 28 of the governor to get to the 50% by 2030 and then ultimately to the 100% um, renewable by 2050. Um, we'll, you know, the governor committed to the Paris Accord, we're not gonna get there either if we build any or all of the natural gas pipelines and power plants that are being proposed in the state of New Jersey. Um, we're not going to get there in part because the power isn't even mostly for the state of New Jersey. Um, we were very thrilled to see that BL England has um, been withdrawn, uh, which means that we should make the steps necessary to uh, withdraw the, power, the pipeline that would have um, fed it. We know that the cumulative impacts of the power plants that are being proposed and the pipelines that are being proposed overall would increase greenhouse gases by uh, 32%. The power plants alone would go up 76% from their carbon uh, greenhouse gas um, emissions. And it would require ozone trading, um, particularly for the Meadowlands North Bergen plant that is being uh, proposed and in, in process. So you can't get to 80% reduction in greenhouse gases and do more natural gas. And you know, a lot of people have said that natural gas is cleaner than coal. Well, actually, um, its greenhouse gas footprint is actually bigger than coal, bigger than oil, bigger than conventional gas, because it's frack gas. Frack gas um, emits all along the chain from extraction to uh, through the pipelines um, huge amounts of methane. And methane um, is 86% more potent uh, than CO2. We have many um, substances like methane, black carbon, um, which are you know, short-term um, warmers. And if we want to have lots of warming, let's keep going with gas. Okay, So the thing that we need to do here in New Jersey, as we are pushing the envelope, to do renewables, energy efficiency, all of those other things, um, we must put the brakes <laughs> on the fossil fuel industry. Um, we can't meet the governor's stated goals 
of the economic development plan to invest in people, invest in communities, have economic equity, social justice. Um, we can't reach the EO 28. We can't reach the mandates of the Global Warming Response Act. We can't meet the new law, the Clean Energy Act. Um, the governor must put a pause button um, to allow his administration, the BPU, and others to catch up. <laughs> um, they need breathing room to come up with the right energy master plan, to come up with the most aggressive energy master plan. We need to make sure that we have uh, pricing mechanisms and other things in place. Um, we must make sure that the governor uses the tools that are available to them now. The governor and the administration could, in fact, regulate CO2. It's had that power since 2005. It has never written the rule. The DEP should take the time, write the rule have the power to do the right thing, to regulate and control the emissions, and to force and drive the good power and energy efficiency and equity issues that go with it. We need to have the breathing room to do a number of things. One is we need to finalize the energy master plan and do a good job at it, right? Have the blueprint to do the right thing. We need to undo the Christie rollbacks, which are hindering our ability to make the right decisions around the pipelines and power plants, whether it's the wetlands rule or other things. We need to adopt the new Category 1 waters, and we need to protect the Category 1 waters. Some of these projects are actually on or near Category 1 water waters. These are federally protected waters. We should not be building power plants and pipelines through these waters. Um, we need to, as I said, establish the rules for greenhouse gases and CO2, and there's another, uh, there's some new efforts underway. We need to fully um, implement and get the, and secure the ban on fracking in the Delaware River Basin. The governor's already written the letter, but the DRBC has to take that vote. <laughs> so we need to ban the fracking, we need to ban the water extraction and the, and the dumping of contaminated waters. We need to remove the cap on solar. There are no caps on, on, on uh, fossil fuels. Why should there be caps on renewables? We need to appoint strong protectors in the Pinelands and the Highlands to make sure that we're doing the right things. We have power plans and pipelines being proposed in the Pinelands and the Highlands. We shouldn't allow any ozone trading. New Jersey is not in compliance for ozone. <laughs> Why would we build a power plant in New Jersey and ozone trade so we can have more ozone in the state of New Jersey? Does it make any sense? I don't think it makes any sense. Um, and we need to advance the economic development plan of the governor. Governor has an ambitious goal. He wants to invest in people. He wants to um, make sure that the, the jobs and the economic development are, are union jobs, but also um, creates opportunities for people in communities to lift up their communities, to be employed and be part of that prosperity of the future. We can't get there if we're doing fossil fuels. Fossil fuels versus renewable jobs, it's a five to one. So that means we could have a more diverse range of jobs. Uh, not everybody has to be a rocket scientist, right? Um, have more diverse range of jobs, and we have jobs in the cities, in the suburbs, in the rural areas, and out at sea, right? So it's not just for some people and not for others. 
Ultimately, you know, I believe that no more fossil fuel is needed uh, to get to where we need to go. Um, I believe that um, we need to invest every single dollar, private and public dollar, um, and agency resources that should be dedicated exclusively to solving the climate crisis, not making it worse. So I am part of Empower NJ, Empower New Jersey. We are over 50 organizations that are calling on the governor to institute a moratorium and ultimately make a decision not to do more fossil fuels. We can't do both fossil fuels and 100% renewables and reach that 80% reduction um, in greenhouse gases. It doesn't make sense. We can't afford it. We can't afford to commit one more dollar to an industry that we see as an industry of the past if we want a future on this planet, even, to be honest, in my own lifetime. And I'm not young anymore, but I don't see where I'm going to even make it. So never mind my children, who are just you know in college, finishing college. Um, I might not even make it. So it's really critically important if you want to be involved or you want to know about our full report that we just released, you can go to empowernewjersey.com. I think that's right. <laughs> and um, actually, if Richard wants to pull out uh, my folder, I have a report. Um, and you can go on our website or you can go on our Clean Water Action website. You could see all the details of our uh, economic analysis, our policy analysis, and the numbers for each of the uh, 12 power plants and pipelines that are being proposed that we say we should not be authorizing any of them and we should move to an aggressive agenda um, for renewables and energy efficiency in an economically and equitable way. Thank you, Amy. Uh, Sarah, uh, several people have talked about solar here today, um, uh, including Larry, who raised the question that most of the pe a lot of people in the audience are dying to hear the answer to. When are you going to come out with uh, interim guidance on the solar program? And a larger question for the uh, rest of the panelists, can uh, New Jersey grow the solar program with that cap in the clean energy law? So solar is one of our exciting areas that we are developing right now. And I think um, Many of you were present at our solar stakeholder meetings. Um, we did issue staff questions related to that, and right now are reviewing comments. There's been quite a bit of activity in the solar marketplace on a variety of fronts. Um, we are also in the process of developing our community solar pilot program. We've been working on making sure that we are implementing different portions of the law and also being able to study how to do this best. And so I would say that this is one of those ongoing processes and that the team has a plan for this. You're going to see something in the future, but I understand that um, we are having continuing discussions on this and that the market would like to see something. Um, but again, this is another area where we are having changes taking place and we want to be making sure that we're doing it right. And so today I'm not going to tell you that on this date you're going to see um, everything be fully implemented, but I want you to know that we are working. Um, we are both digesting what you have said 
as well as what you've written to us. And staff is also looking at what is going on. But again, I think this is another area where I would like to highlight the positive. New Jersey has over 100,000 solar installations. We have been very committed to solar. We also have lots of rooftops um, that can still be put to use on this front. We are looking at how we are making this accessible to everyone. And I think that's the exciting part of our community solar program and having a 40% carve out for low and moderate income within our pilot program. And so as all of these different policies are going forth, remember that we need to do this in a deliberative fashion in which we are making sure that we are putting the state on the right policy. And I think that while the speed of business doesn't always match up with the speed of government, um, we are going forward on a more accelerated discussion as we are coming to a policy decision on this issue. But solar is still alive in New Jersey. There is still a healthy queue. We have over 100,000 installations, and we're still looking at developing new programs. But we are committed to renewables. And I, I, you know, speaking as someone that's active in solar, I do appreciate your answer. We do appreciate everything the BPU is doing. We do see a lot of change at the BPU. You know, the, the comments that I have about sort of the sense of urgency is really about our clean energy plan. and it's trying to channel some of that into, you know, here's some of the things we really need to do. But I will agree with Amy. Um, you know, we need to lift, the, the and, and Frank, those cost caps are not well designed right now. Those cost caps are, are not compatible with the clean energy goals. Now, there are some numbers that work, but analysis needs to be done. That was thrown into the mix in an imperfect legislative process. And to Frank's point, we need better institutional planning capability to make sure that as we do our planning, you know, we're putting in place caps that are compatible with that. So those caps um, need to be addressed. Yeah, and I would, and I appreciate the urgency and everything you guys are doing, it's amazing. I would ask in five years from now, how do we prevent or try to reduce the, the probability where we are, not just with solar and not to, to, to you or the BPU, but this, you know, the silos of, okay, we have an offshore wind policy, we have an energy efficiency policy, we have different at levels of governments, different incentive mechanisms and so forth. How do we align these? Because I believe strongly, or at least I would ask the question, if we scale up all of our existing policies across this, I call it the baker's dozen uh, of, of issues, it's not sustainable financially. It's just not. And it will will likely, in my view, result in a political uh, flashback or kickback, which we've seen at the federal level, and we saw even here um, in a prior administration. And so trying to figure out, while at the same time, you're fixing a ship at sea, rebuilding a ship at sea, which is, I've done before, it's impossible. Um, but we, we need to think about how do we get, avoid being where we are five years from now. I'd love to hear Scott again talk in five years from now, but to be honest, I'd rather not. Um, because otherwise, we'll, we'll just be keep duct taping along, or as they say, Alabama chrome. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I use uh, an example of the water supply master plan. There's probably some of you who have that experience. Um, and we're still tw waiting 20 years later for the plan to be revised. So we don't want to be stuck in a system that, um, you know, isn't, um, doesn't move with the, with the progress. and. But we, but we also believe that if the BPU and, 
and the governor, you know, makes a very strong plan to begin with and really sort of says, this is where we're going to say yes and this is where we're going to say no and be very clear about it, industry will get the message and people will innovate. Rutgers is famous for its innovation just like many other places. It, I've, I, I've been working in the environmental field for 40 years, <laughs> a really long time. And I have never seen advancement happen at a speed where there hasn't been a mandate or a requirement. Just like I always use this example, our organization got the law that gives you household batteries that has virtually no mercury in it. If New Jersey and my organization hadn't passed that law, you would not have those batteries and you wouldn't have them in Ohio and California and elsewhere, just like on clean car legislation. So if we mandate things, industry innovation will happen. And I think we have at times, we, not to, we can't just set goals, but we actually have to mandate. So just like we need to mandate on CO2, just like we have to mandate on some other things, we have to regulate and mandate and stick with it. Otherwise, the industry will not get the message and will sort of wiggle around. So. Larry, uh, in your opening comments, you talked about the renewables uh, where 4.5%, I said. Uh, how much should New Jersey rely on uh, out-of-state renewables, and how much should we be will would that be willing to, would that be a factor in maybe limiting the cost if we're importing cheap onshore wind and other places? Yeah, and I, I, th I think this is one where there's some, you know, policy trade-offs that need to be made. Clearly, um, if we're going to meet our 2030 goal by just buying out-of-state class one recs, you know, from projects in Illinois and Ohio, I mean, that's a way to meet the goal. And I'll take back what I said earlier. You probably could make the cost caps if you did that. But then you've done nothing for creating economic development. You have not built the distributed energy architecture that we're trying to get to, where it's cleaner, where we have more energy independence here in New Jersey, where we have more resilience. So you really have to be, you know, you, you really have to weigh that. Um, I think, you know, what we're also trying to get away from here is we're, we're trying to talk about real power. We're trying to talk about, you know, real electricity that we're generating from these sources. You know, I think we, we can start to think creatively about um, like they do in other states, contracting, you know, at a state for, you know, wind or solar under long-term contracts. You know, we, it's not easy for us to get our hands on hydro, but I think that can be part of the mix. Um, but I think this has to be back to Frank's point. We kind of got to look at all our options and sort of come up with some judgments as to what's, what's feasible and what, what's not. You know, just looking at solar, for instance, you know, if we meet, you know, I, I, threw out some numbers before where I said, you know, we can get, you know, roughly 60%, meet 60% of our 2030 goal with, you know, if we get that offshore wind bit built and with existing solar. Now, you could put in another nine and a half gigawatts of solar here in state, and you could, you know, meet the rest of the target. You know, is that feasible? You know, do we have the land? 
Um, you know, do we have the, the, the capability to interconnect this? What's that going to do? You know, what's the impact going to be on the utility system? Um, you know, are we capable of supplying at that level? You know, are there enough rooftops? So I think you have to look at all those things and then say, well, you know what, maybe half of that is a reasonable goal given, you know, what we're capable of producing and then how are you going to get the rest? So I, I think there does, uh, so I don't have an exact answer for you, but I think there has to be a thought process where we figure it out. And then that does need to get mapped back to our goals, to our programs, um, and to everything we do. So I'm going to bring up something that's a little bit different, but I think we don't really talk about it very much, is um, actually not just about the electricity, um, but talk about heating. Uh, if you look at Ocean County in particular, where there's a high concentration of seniors, many of them are in electric homes, and they're freezing in the winter because they can't afford their electric bill. Um, yet, we don't really talk about uh, passive solar or ways in which we can do other things to either more easily either retrofit homes or do solar attics or do other kinds of things in our new building design and our and in some of our old buildings. I 30 years ago I was in Wisconsin this little tiny town where they moved the whole town um, because it was in a flood zone and it's been flooded like two or three times and they said well we're only going to build if you move and they moved and here's this town where it used to snow and used to be really cold. <laughs> Not so much anymore. But um, they built a supermarket and they built all their homes downtown and it was all, you know, solar attics and retrofits. And these people never turned on their gas. I know you want people to buy gas. <laughs> but, but these people, including the supermarket, um, never turned on its gas as backup. And I think it's really important if we're going to look at energy it's not just electricity and it's not just cars, you know. So uh, we should look at heat and what could we do differently about our heat? Uh, talking about elect uh, electrifying cars, um, that hasn't really been mentioned a whole lot today. But to me, it, it's a no-brainer. Uh, we're a densely populated state. It wouldn't be a big lift to build the infrastructure for it. Uh, yet the legislature seems uh, unwilling to move forward on a comprehensive bill to address that. What needs to be done to get that uh, uh, program moving? Or is it better that uh, it sit aside and we pursue other priorities? I'll jump in. For those of you who may not know, New Jersey actually has the most electric cars deployed within the PJM grid. And I like to look at it from that perspective too because the BPU is very active in the electric car discussion because we do regulate the grid and being able to monitor that. And I think that this is part of our um, forward planning. And as we have a goal for 2025 of how many vehicles we're going to be having on the road, looking at these different strategies. Right now, the BPU and the DEP have a charging program. And if you're interested in having a workplace charging program, we've got a rebate for it. I think for many people, it is making sure that they know that they can get from where they're going 
well, from where they are to where they're going. And a lot of that also has been the comfort and the education. And as we're moving forward, I think you'll be seeing some more strategies as electric vehicles evolves. And I think also that we have a lot going on within our interagency workings where there is a focus. But again, this is something that's different. And as people are shopping for cars, making sure that they are aware of what's coming. But this is another area where the marketplace is moving that way. And I think that you've had a lot of different manufacturers announcing in 2020 what the vehicle lineup is going to be. And a lot of them are going to be electric. New Jersey has many different charging places throughout the state. I think you will be seeing more of that. And you'll also be seeing it as you go to your different state agencies too. If you come to the BPU and park in the deck by our building, you can charge up on the roof. And there's different options available. And as people become aware of this, they're going to become more comfortable with it. And I think you'll start to see it. But also looking at making sure that we can make it accessible to everyone. And I think that's another reason why we're very excited about our latest grant, where we're able to look at um, the possibilities for car sharing options as well in urban settings. And again, looking at how transportation has changed over time and the fact that People in urban settings don't necessarily own cars anymore. So how do we make that accessible as an option too? And so if you are going to car share, where are the electric vehicle options? And being able to bring that to the state within the next few years. Um, I was just gonna add also we should be considering um, how we move our goods. I, I chair the Coalition for Healthy Ports and uh, we've been talking with the city of Newark about creating zero emission zones and how can we move goods that are staying close by. Um, most goods that come into the port stay within a 70 mile radius. Um, IKEA actually has converted all of its delivery trucks um, to electric trucks in New York City, but not in New Jersey. <laughs> Yet they move the goods from their New Jersey location that's next to the port. So they're making progress and they're going to go all the way, but if we do some concentration on fleets and converting fleets and, and um, especially with goods movements that is, instead of coming to 8A, you know, on the turnpike, they're actually, the warehouses are now in Elizabeth and now they're in Newark and they're in, you know, Secaucus. And so we could actually be doing electrification, um, not just of individual personal cars, but electrification of mass transit, especially in, in hot spots. If you ever go to Port to Penn Station in Newark and stand in that bus uh, depot, you know, you could be really sick really fast and imagine if you're a bus driver or you're a regular person who uses that. So looking at fleets to convert also would get us a big reduction and also it would not all depend on, although New Jersey Transit is obviously public money, it would not all depend on public money to make those uh, conversions for fleets of trucks and uh, goods movement. Yeah, I'll chip in again. I think this one is critical. Oh, Frank, I'm sorry. No, I have nothing to say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, all right. So I'll just reiterate what I said. I think this one is critically important. There is so much, you know, almost 50% of our greenhouse gas emissions are related to the transport transportation sector. Okay, so it's it's a big one. Um, even though we may be the highest in PJM that includes, you know, a bunch of other states that might not necessarily be great benchmarks for us, we're way behind 
uh, New York, California. So we need to be ramping it up. And the, um, you know, the, the key is, you know, you, I think you sort of posed this in your question, well, maybe we should just wait for it to become economical and then, it, then it'll happen. But no, I mean, this is where, you know, the government right now can do things to deal with the range anxiety issues by putting in more charging stations. That'll help to do that. You know, if, if we put a rebate program out there and your neighbor gets an EV, suddenly, you know, 10 other people are now saying, hey, this is starting to catch on. Maybe I'll get an EV. And we have to understand empirically, not by reading some study done in some other place, you know, what is the impact going to be here on the, on the electric power system? You know, what does this really mean in terms of, you know, distribution infrastructure, transmission, generation? How do we make sure, how do we start testing how we're going to drive people to charge off peaks so we don't have to add uh, additional capacity? Um, these are things we need to know. So it'll be, it'll be good for the state and, and, and good to help us learn by starting to do things here. Um, sooner rather than later. Mentioning uh, the distribution and transmission system, it's going to require tremendous investment by the utilities um, into making the grid and integrating all these renewables into it. Um, uh, public service uh, talked about their smart metering, advanced metering program uh, this morning, that's got, I think, a $900 million price tag. Um, uh, uh, how much money is it going to cost to bring the grid up to snuff with, in South Jersey, Atlantic City Electric can't hook up um, some uh, solar in many places because of the grid needs to be upgraded. Is the state doing enough to address this problem, Sarah? As you mentioned, Tom, there are some currently pending matters before the board that I can't talk about. Um, but I think that we at the BPU every day strive to be able to provide reliable service and ensure that the ratepayers of New Jersey have a system. We are on a path to make sure that things are accessible and that we are able to develop our future where we are taking into account environmental justice concerns, cost concerns, modernization, the ability to compete, and that hopefully you'll be seeing our thoughts in the next few months. Yeah, I don't know if the state's doing enough or should do more. Um, but here I think the question too is the importance of looking at all these things holistically because offshore winds go affect the grid and potentially, um, whereas solar and EVs will affect more on the distribution, obviously the grid interacts, it's not uh, separable. Um, not just in the state, I hate to break the news, we are part of a region um, both on the electric grid um, where the electrons just don't understand the geographical boundaries set in the late 1700s, um, but also in terms of our air shed, in terms of air pollution, um, which I think deserves a higher elevation in terms of the policy priorities um, doesn't mean the other ones aren't very important. They are, but I think air pollution is something that um, I think, and you mentioned the ports, that's one of many examples, um, and the associated equity issue. Here, this is where I think the states could, and I actually like this in the legislation, not particularly the cap numbers on the rate increases, 
but it forces the comparisons across the policy domains, the issue sets, as some people will call them, in terms of electric vehicles, offshore wind, smart grid, energy efficiency, demand response, solar, you can keep going down the list. Because either you can make those trade-offs explicitly, and hopefully that would mean better informed and no one's going to like all the answers, but, um, or you can make them implicitly. And I, I believe if you make them implicitly, you're likely to get uh, your, uh, worse results than if you sit down and just acknowledge how these things interact. And, and I'll just, I think, Frank, this is exhibit A in your call for, you know, we need more institutional planning capability. I mean, because this traditionally would have been, you know, part of a utility integrated resource plan to look at all the, you know, implications of policy on the, on the electric grid. You know, that's sort of been fragmented now as we're a deregulated state. You know, PJM has a piece of it. Um, you know, the utilities have a piece of it with respect to the distribution system. But who is looking at this holistically so that, you know, the things that we need to be investing in in the electric grid, you know, are understood? And these are not surprises, right, that this is something that's understood. You know, um, you know, one of the things that we are thinking about um, you know, we talked about one of the things that's not on the, the current clean energy plan is um, the electrification of heat. And one of the reasons is because, and, you know, uh, organizations like NREL have studied this, ICF, uh, ACEEE, is you suddenly create a winter peaking utility where you would need to double the amount of electric generating capacity, transmission, and distribution to be able to support the, the heating needs on the coldest days of the year. That's something that we have to understand um, as we think about the end games uh, of where we're going with, with decarbonization. And then what other alternatives are out there that can help us get to the decarbonization goals in buildings um, that involve something other than more cost-effective alternatives to just you know, electrification of heat. That doesn't say air source heat pumps don't have a major role to play in the future. We see a lot of improvements there. Um, but right now, we don't see them working that efficiently uh, at the cold temperatures. And that's, you know, unless we're willing on, on uh, zero degree days to be, you know, huddling in shawls, um, you know, we're going to have a problem. So that's, that's just, that needs to be part of this whole discussion um, as, as we think all this through. What are other states doing that New Jersey should uh, replicate and take uh, lessons from. Are there any other states moving forward in a more sustained and um, thoughtful pattern uh, than New Jersey? And what should New Jersey copy? I realize British Columbia is not a state, but you know we can change that. Um, so one path is through the incentives or subsidies, and I've been hinting or suggesting that perhaps that's not scalable. Perhaps it's, it may not be cost effective. At some point, I think we need to consider uh, where we put a meaningful uh, price on carbon. You can do it in a variety of ways, preferably through the federal, certainly the state's redoing it by rejoining Reggie. And then you sell off the emission allowances or you take the tax revenues, you address the equity issues because it's the, the poor um, and the low income that are disproportionately hit by the regressive nature of energy and food and healthcare and transportation and air pollution, other pollutants as well. Oh, light and water, perhaps we should address that. Um, and also then offset the 
the economic or try to offset the economic drag as we increase, because in the near term, we're going to be increasing energy bills as we uh, decarbonize. And so I think at some point, maybe that's initially just the intellectual uh, benchmark that we compare the current path. And, you know, perhaps at some point, British Columbia has this version of a cap and trade economy-wide, not just electricity, economy-wide to address your issues. Um, and you, where you recycle the revenues. Anybody else? I think New Jersey is pretty great, but not to say that we can't learn from other folks too. And again, um, one of these examples I think has been beneficial going through the Smarter States initiative and being able to have those opportunities to sit down and talk to other states. Um, I'm also involved in the National Association of State Energy Officers, so that gives me the opportunity to talk about things. Um, Hawaii has a really cool model that I want. Um, so there are opportunities out there for us to see what's going on in other states and learn from them just as they're learning from us too. As I mentioned, our community solar carve out is one of the larger ones. There's other folks from um, different states that are watching to see how we're able to implement that. There is a lot of knowledge exchange going on, but I always welcome best practices and good ideas. So one thing that um, has raised concerns on the one hand, you look at models you want to replicate and other models maybe you don't want to replicate. And uh, one of the things that there is a lot of concern about, you know, cap and trade market driven forces in that um, it doesn't actually mandate a reduction necessarily if you don't have other pieces aggressively in place. Um, and also it doesn't, um, it doesn't get to the mandatory reductions necessarily in communities that are so hard hit and have been disproportionately hit by fossil fuels for, you know, for decades. And so um, we need to be really uh, mindful uh, of this because uh, Reggie doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get better in Newark. And it, it, would it have still meant that the Hess plant would have built, been built in Newark as opposed to somewhere else? So we, ju we just need to look at that and then try and think about, well, is there something beyond actually cap and trade and market-driven forces? Is there something more that we need to do? And I would argue that, again, doing more mandatory policies uh, that shift um, is maybe a better approach on many of the things to force the industry and the technology and the innovation. And also the other thing is ask people what they're willing to pay for and not um, so that we're actually, um, if people really want community solar that, and people want it, especially in communities that don't have access to clean energy, then we should be maybe spending more of our money on the things that will get us to where we need to go to, especially for people who are so left behind um, and uh, often are cold because they can't afford the heat or the light. So I'll avoid the cap and trade debate. but. Um, so CO2 or greenhouse gases, doesn't matter where they're emitted, same worldwide impact. That's not the, the case, not the case for the criteria air pollutants. So it may be the case, I don't know, I haven't done the analysis by installing a community solar in Newark that that improves the air quality in Newark, maybe. There may be a lot more uh, ways that with the same dollar you can improve the air quality in those areas, which should be improved. Electrification of the ports, airport, whatever, there's a whole list of things. 
So let's, if I could, I don't think we should assume that just putting a solar panel or a whole bunch of solar panels in a particular area that's existingly hard hit by pollutants, given the grid nature, the regional nature of the electric, will improve their air quality. If the goal is to improve their air quality, let's figure out how to do that. That's a combination of transportation, local industry, of course, electricity, but also other point sources and, um, and non-energy sources as well. So the, here, again, I would focus in on the question and the issue and not the, the solution. <clears throat> One topic uh, we really haven't focused on today and that Scott mentioned was his effort in New York to uh, develop the utility of the future. And what about, does New Jersey need to undertake that process? Start with you, Larry, but uh, I'd like Sarah to also take a hand at it. But now your company faces, is under a lot of pressure these days, uh, under the pipelines and the whole moratorium movement that uh, Amy's a part of. How do you envision New Jersey natural resources in the future? Right. Well, we are very committed to the, the clean energy future and to helping us transition into that future. Um, you asked a couple of questions there. Um, the first was, you know, thinking about the utility of the future. Um, yeah, that's something we should be doing. We should be talking about it. We should be actively engaged um, in, in those discussions. Um, you know, what I am most focused on and most anxious on is right now is to grow that you know, penetration of renewables in the state. And I think the more that we do that, the more that discussion becomes relevant. Um, you know, as it relates to, you know, the gas utility, you know, we have an obligation to serve customers, right? And so uh, we have to serve them safely and reliably and, and cost effectively. And as we've done for the past 50 years, where we see opportunities where we need to improve our system, you know, we're going to bring those opportunities forward. Um, you know, I don't know about all the pipelines going on in the state, but the ones we're involved in are trying to uh, diversify some of the increasing risk we have of being tied to one interstate pipeline and one major interconnection point there, which we see from the studies that we've done is going to pose increasing risks um, of outages. And, and Outages, fortunately, we don't see too many of these in the gas system because of the underground resiliency. Uh, but when they happen, it's not like an electric outage where the, everything just comes out. You have to shut everything off and then repressurize it house by house, building by building. It could take weeks. And we don't want that to happen in the coldest times of the year. And we see increasing risks of that happening uh, with increasing stress on, on demand and um, you know, limits on building new, new pipelines. So we, we need to bring this, to, we work on this with our BPU. They hold us to very rig rigorous uh, prudency tests on any investments that we make. Um, and we're gonna look then to make these investments complementary with the clean energy future. So we do this in a way that we're minimizing leaks, we're minimizing methane emissions, we're, we're buying gas from uh, producers, that are environmentally responsible. We're helping customers save costs on their heat, which is gonna help us fund uh, decarbonizing the power system and the transportation system and sustain that political will I was talking about. 
And at some point in the future, yes, maybe we have an option to leverage that infrastructure in the future to decarbonize buildings in a more cost-effective way than uh, pure electrification. like a broken record sometimes again can't share with you everything that the board is thinking but i think it is safe to say that there has been again a shift as we've embraced the connectivity backbone with the energy backbone and if i were to ask how many of you in the room right now could change your thermostat from where you're sitting we'd probably see a decent amount of hands yes i can too um or you know, being able to say how many of you just automatically pay your utility bills and don't get a bill in the month anymore, or, well, you don't actually get the physical hard copy. There has been technology changes that have happened that are impacting how our utilities interact with their customers, and that customer experience has also changed over the years. And I think that as technology and connectivity continue to increase there's going to be a changing business role a changing customer role and a changing regulator role and as we are planning for the future part of it is taking that into account because 10 years ago if i told you you were going to pay your bill without looking at it and change your thermostat without being in front of it i don't know that we would have thought that was possible so i can only imagine how things are going to be changing as we go forward all right. Uh, in the past few months, I, I hear more and more people talk about this gonna, because of the enormous challenges ahead of us. Uh, there's going to be hard choices that have to be made by policymakers in New Jersey. So I'm going to ask, and, and we're running out of time, uh, each of the panelists to say if they had to make a choice. What, what hard choice would they make first? Which of all these strategies and policies would you say, as much as I like it, we can't afford to go ahead and do that, or we have to wait? Larry? <clears throat> if we're going to get to 50% by 2030, we're going to have to have creative approaches to the compliance with the cost caps. If we apply those literally, we're not going to get there. And so we're going to need that. I would cut the Rutgers football team and reallocate <laughs> the money to the academic side of the house. So since I'm involved in studies that are trying to help inform the board, maybe I'll, I'll leave it at that. I look at we have many opportunities ahead of us and that the board is going to be able to embark on a new path for New Jersey, and that these strategies are going to shape our future. And so I am very excited, and I think that it's going to be a great few months coming up, so stay tuned. And I would say that uh, Clean Water Action and Empower New Jersey would say we don't need any more fossil fuels. Um, and I know you asked a different reverse question, what would you give up? But I think there are some people here who still think natural gas is a good option. Um, we do not agree that it is a good option and it actually should be taken off the table so that we can push the regulatory, the money, the investments uh, in the right direction. 
And Tom probably won't be happy with this answer either, but I am very excited that Governor Murphy added additional money back into um, the clean energy program. So probably our difficult choice is going to be all of the great different programs that we can invest in and how can we get energy efficiency out there to more residents and businesses in the state. Well, I am happy that the governor has stopped, uh, has begun the process of ending diversions. Uh, I want to, we've run out of time, I'm afraid. I want to just thank the panelists again. Uh, excellent job. And John? And, and as, our, as our gift to you, you get uh, our coffee mug. So um, thank you all very much. And I also want to especially thank and um, give applause to Tom Johnson, who this is not an easy task. So thank you all very much for coming. Um, remind, reminder about the surveys. Those are really very helpful to us. Also, a couple people asked during the event um, how to get the live stream. And uh, we will be posting it with uh, the page for the uh, event um, in the next few days. But I think I'm told if you Google the, the uh, YouTube and the name of this event, it com comes up pretty high up. So you can get it right away and share it uh, today as well. Um, and thank you again very much for coming, and, and let's keep this conversation going. Great. We hope you enjoyed this NJ Spotlight Roundtable program. If you have comments or suggestions, please email info at njspotlight.com. We produce these programs in the studios of statebroadcastnews.com, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us, and take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insights for New Jersey.